And you had a spy network, meaning you like actual people, like were, like friends in the in the this like in the mud pyramid scheme. Type yeah, yeah, yeah. Situation. It was exactly like that, okay. where I was trying, to, for whatever reason, maneuver and role play so well that they would turn me into a community volunteer in how the did, mud. How did you get so many people to follow you? Um. Uh, the usual, like some of its favors, <laughs> charm. I don't, I don't, I, no, honestly, I don't know the usual. Like. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Tanya Short, co-founder of Kit Fox Games, and best known for her work on Moon Hunters and Boyfriend Dungeon. This episode was recorded on March 23rd, 2023, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. Cool. So, what I usually like to start with is... <laughs> what I usually like to start with is, what's the first video game that you remember? Bubble Bobble. Bubble Bobble? For the Nintendo okay. entertainment system, yes. That's a great game. I played in the arcade, but... Uh, no, it's, yeah. I played it at home. Um, it's tied in my memory with... Uh, at a, Around a similar time I was playing, uh, there's a particular DOS game that I never figured out what the name of it is, but it mm. terrified me. It was a it was gold box style like it was okay. the, like you're going dungeon crawling and trying to find keys and, and that sort of thing, but I only vaguely understood what was going on because I was I was that young, um, and there was a particular skeleton sound okay. that I very much did not like and I would hide behind the couch whenever that happened which probably interfered with my understanding of what was going on in the game but um, my dad would play it and I would oh you'd watch him I would watch him and and direct him in uh, in how to solve the dungeon and I still have no idea what game that was but it's a uh, strong memory Wow. Okay. Um, so did you, you play a lot of games during this period or Yeah. Like yeah, when I was uh, I would say 4 to Eight. I played a lot of, of console games, and then I was uh, informed I was a little bit. I, I was supposed to grow out of it, so I, I tried to do that, but ended up in in muds instead. <laughs> in muds. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So when when did how soon did that start? Uh, that was probably middle school to to high school. Yeah. Um, as a preteen, I well, I started in chat rooms. Um, and sort of reinvented role-playing, or independently, I guess, invented the idea of role-playing. Uh, and people kindly informed me that I should go to these What do you mean by you in independently invented? Well, so uh, so awkward. Being a 13-year-old girl who starved for social uh, interaction, right. I was off a dirt road, off a dirt road in a rural town to begin with, in okay. the middle of a desert. Where, where was this? This is 29 Palms, California, in okay. the Mojave Desert. Wow. Okay. And it's 30 minutes outside of this tiny town. Right. Um, I'm informed I'm too, I'm too mature to enjoy video games, and so I'm, I'm, but I'm given free reign to the internet. Okay. So I discover Yahoo chat rooms and probably AOL chat rooms, that sort of thing. And I go there and um, chat. And then so I, I have this distinct memory of informing everyone in this chat room that we were now having a pool party and they were going to role play what they were doing at the pool party. And they were going to like we were going to take turns <laughs> who's doing what at the pool party and who's who's yeah having what activities and whatever. And they were like, OK, actually, you want to go to this 
There's thing. another room for you. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole other thing called a video game that you need to go do. And uh, informed me uh, how to how to get to multi-user dungeons, uh, which the, what they were called at the time. And I thrived there for many years. And that was basically my only connection to video games for for a long time. Oh, really? So you weren't playing anything else? Like, you really, when you were, like, eight or nine... I mean, you... I, I would sometimes sneak a Final Fantasy onto my, my little brother's uh, PlayStation 1 or something, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know what Final Fantasies were on. I don't remember what RPGs exactly were on the PS1, right. but I remember renting some okay. and, like, pushing hard for that. Wait, but, so your brothers, like, played video games? So my little you? brother... So that's what happened. There was this traumatic Christmas where... I really wanted a, I don't know, like a PS1 or something like that. And yeah. and I distinctly remember, no, your little brother's getting it because you're old enough now. You should be doing other things. And you know, we just thought you wouldn't want it. Um, so, yeah, then I, I went, I, w- I would still occasionally use it. But but really, MUDs were where I thrived, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just interesting that there was that, like, I mean, I know a lot of parents... Sometimes there are people I interview where, yeah, their parents didn't like video games and they had to like negotiate something or whatever. Um, but it's interesting that you got cut off from video games, but not from like technology. So. No, and in fact, it's sort of the opposite. My mother strongly believed in the in as early as the eighties that um, TV was much more problematic for children. She felt that uh, the active participation. Yep. Uh, was much more healthy for kids for for video games. So she wouldn't restrict my time with video games. Uh, I would get very frustrated with them and, and turn them off myself and go play a VHS tape. Um, but she deliberately never turned on uh, like broadcast television. Like right. she just never connected the the satellite or anything like that. Wow. So okay. I only had video games and VHS. <laughs> <laughs> wait, and wait, then wait, later chat rooms. Wait, wait. What did you just say? You only had video games and VHS. Yeah. Video games and VHS? Yeah, I was oh, allowed okay. to watch uh, whatever tapes were there. I so miss- I watched a lot of Terminator 2. <laughs> okay, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no te- television except no, at Grandma's house. No random stuff. So you're missing chunks of pop culture. Definitely, definitely. Like, has, <laughs> what's that like? <laughs> you know, it's not so bad because movies and video games were much better anyway. Like, the telev- a lot of the television shows that people... Uh, you know, they can use as a reference. They weren't actually great. Yeah, <laughs> it suppose. seems like yeah. when people are talking, like I, I'm even having trouble thinking of an example. Um, what's the one about the Malcolm in the Middle or something like that? Right. Like, right. I, I have no idea what that even is, actually. But, right. like, who cares? <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So you start playing MUDs. This is in the... Mid late nineties. Late nineties. Yeah, late nineties. Yeah. Okay, so like, was Ultima Online a thing at that point? And this was kind of yes. like this was just the option you had was. Yeah. So my computer Ultima. wasn't good enough. It wasn't meant for video games. Yeah. It, it it wasn't good enough for EverQuest. It wasn't good for good enough for Ultima, but it was good enough for for MUDs. Okay. Um. So. Okay. Well, let's talk about like. Let's. Do you remember like the first MUD you played then, and like how it you know. No. Because it must have been. There was so, but I did. I do remember hopping around a lot, trying a lot of different kinds of muds, and basically enjoying the mastery of because Deku muds were were sort of proliferating everywhere and kind of similar. And so it was kind of interesting to see how someone would spin their own version but change something. All right, I so I don't have any experience with muds. So okay. tell me a little bit about how it how it worked. Like what is it you were actually were doing? So it's a browser window basically i think there was a software but you could also use your browser a lot of times and you could well whatever the equivalent of a browser was in the 90s i don't remember exactly but 
you'd just get a lot of um, ASCII or text and you'd create your character. And I think for Deku Muds, that was the one where they dropped you typically. As a tutorial, you're dropped into an arena fighting some sort of like a gladiatorial combat with some sort of minor enemy uh, to teach you the, the various controls. Um, you type in like a letter as a command. Um, so like A for attack or something like that. Mm. But it's not actually A because WASD was probably, no, the arrows. God, it's been so long. <laughs> um, you would, so you, would, would you see a grid on the screen? Or... No, so it would just describe in text what this room looks like and what's in the room. So it would say, like, you're in a, a gladiator arena, and there's this thing here. So it's a little, like, Infocom-ish? A... I mean, you probably, I guess, maybe didn't play Infocom. I never probably. played those, but sort of, yeah. No, I did. So I did play, actually, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, mm. Is that Infocom? Yeah, that's Infocom. Okay, okay. So, yeah, that's like, here's um, the room, and you're, like, examine. And, it like, is pick like up that, and, only, like, like, people wander by, right. and the creatures, like, attack you, and you have turn, ba like, real-time turns kind of thing. Right. That's the one thing that, so I, like, I, I understand with MUDs, it was like, yeah, it was a little bit like Zork or whatever, mm -hmm. but also it must be in real time, because obviously every, everyone's not waiting for you. Right. And that seems kind of weird. It's like the, it, it, but it's the exact same logic as World of Warcraft, for example. It's like, it just a turn happens every second sure. and a half or whatever okay and you so you have this little buffer to put in your input and if you don't the rest of the game will act okay and is um, it kind of like you can only act every second or two yes so typing faster doesn't change anything because if you type if you hit a bunch of attacks it's only going to take one anyway is with the exception i believe in most cases of movement where if you are very fast, you can move very quickly through the world, and the index of where your character is isn't turn-based. It's only the attack and, and registering of the attacks. Okay. So you can hit, like, <laughs> west, 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 or whatever it is. And yeah, you yeah, yeah. And this was a huge thing in PvP. <laughs> I was okay. once trained, I was tutorialized, like, a tutored by an expert PvP player in how to run very fast through a particular area to evade uh, assassins. <laughs> Do you have any sense why this, there was a difference? Like, why would the two systems work differently? Because one is for multiplayer and one is for, I, I believe, I don't have any confirmation of this, but my intuition is that um, that combat was primarily intended to be like a fair dueling system that was, that was originally built uh, to be PvE. Right. And then it was just sort of adapted because it, it could work PvP. Uh, that, that's my impression. Right. Uh, whereas movement theoretically doesn't involve anyone else, so they they kind of restricted it. Yeah. But then of course, everything that could interact the, the, and you the, could get locked. I think if you in in some games, if you were in combat, you'd get locked in I unless see. you you could somehow extract yourself, like typical JRPG logic. Right. Okay. Um, and what was like the social aspect of the game? Uh, mostly mysterious people with weirdly horny uh, descriptions of characters, like walking around, um, killing random things. Um, yeah, uh, but I remember I was particularly drawn to role-playing, as I, I mentioned. So after a little while of dropping into these various dungeon situations, I started gravitating towards ones that had more of a story, more of a world, um, like a lot of setting. And that's how I got into the, the Wheel of Time series was because there were all these Wheel of Time based muds that people uh, seemed to be very, it was basically fan fiction. It was, it was collaborative fan fiction that you'd see people writing very flowery uh, descriptions of what they were doing and why they were doing and where they were going, um, which is very appealing for a 13 year old. Um, uh so when someone says they're writing descriptions of what they were doing, 
Like that's another character in the world. Uh, sorry, I'm, I, I know this is very basic, <laughs> but like, how does that text come over to you? You ask them what they're doing, and they would write it themselves directly, or they would have like a so like a some page that explains what they're doing. Or I did. so some are more advanced than others. At a very basic level, typically there would be a fountain. Okay. It's so it's so weird how common this is. There's always a fountain there's in the middle a of, of a town. <laughs> in every town, there's a fountain. Yeah. And there's always someone who wants to role play sitting on the fountain. Okay. And so what you can do is you can set your character description. Like, you know how I said it, it has like the, the description of the room yep. and the exits yep. and what's in the room. You can set what your character, like that one line description of okay. like, so-and-so is sitting on the fountain or whatever. And it's very free form typically. Right. Um, that's like an advanced way to do it. But even at a very basic level, even if they didn't have that command, um, they would still typically have the emote command, which all it does is append a string to the end of your name. You do, it's just a command that, that broadcasts some string to everybody in the room. And so you would have this emote ready for when someone walks in. Right. You would, you would prep, prep, emote, and let, let's pretend my character's name is, is Tanya. Um, emote is sitting on the fountain singing a song about mushrooms or whatever. And then as soon as someone comes in, I press enter, and then they mm -hmm. see, oh, Tanya's sitting on the fountain singing a song about mushrooms. And then if they're interested, then they can, it's like a bid to see if, if someone wants, wants to, to, pick to up engage. The story. And then they could emote something. Yeah. So Okay. Okay. And this is the way in which I befriended a bunch of probably somewhere between 30 to 40 year old men. Uh, as a 13-year-old, completely safely. <laughs> okay, I'm like, this, this sounds dangerous, but maybe this was, like, so long. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I was I was aware that I shouldn't give them my my name, my age, my location, anything yeah. like that. But they were still, like, there were some people I role-played with for literal years. Mm -hmm. And one of them, I remember, I was very attached to. And it turned out he, uh, he told me he was going to college. And it was only mm -hmm. a couple of years before I would go to college. So I was like, oh, he was around the same age. Right, right. <laughs> That's it was cool. like, this is why I'm disappointed with disappearing. Um, Were there, are there any of those people from that era that you still know? No, I am very curious about that particular one, but yeah. I, I never really had enough information. I don't even remember what university it was, so yeah. I don't I mean, think it'll ever... People, there wasn't, it was hard to keep track of people back then. There so. is exactly one person. Okay. There's exactly one mud person who was so persistent okay. that I do still know. I know both their name and who they are, and I have their contact information. They worked at a, at a big tech company. Um, it was not a, it's not a friendly persistence. I didn't like that. No. Mm. Sort of inspired Eric from Boyfriend Dungeon, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Well, <laughs> I wonder can, if he's listening now. We can get fun. back to that later then. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's interesting. Um, okay. Well, um, and I, I was going to ask sort of a similar question was, is anyone, did anyone you know in real life was they were the, is anyone you knew in your you know your local area doing this or were you just completely not that I know of um, I was in a, a teen kind of sort of my boyfriend relationship with a mm. guy who was doing like uh, tabletop role playing right that was the closest right. um, none of my my quote unquote real friends were doing anything like that did you feel I don't know what the right question to ask. Like, do you feel like you were doing this weird thing that no one understood? Like, would you talk to, did your friends know you were doing this or? No, it was a completely separate life. Uh, it was like I had another identity for sure. And I would play for 16 hours and forget to eat. It wow. was, uh, it was a whole, and I, I was an A student, uh, valedictorian okay. type. Um, but yeah, weekends were dedicated to, uh, to my, my role playing. Did your, <laughs> what did your parents think of all this? Uh, they got a second phone line immediately. Okay. 
But that's uh, like that was back in the chat room days before right. I even discovered muds. They were like, "Oh, we need another phone." Well, that supply that implies they're supportive, <laughs> though. I mean, that, that's, yeah, I mean, that's I, good. I, supportive slash decided they didn't know enough and were just like, "You can talk to me anytime." Right. <laughs> um, there was one time when one of my mud friends offered to take me on a road trip around California, um, and he was going to come come meet me. And I was all gung-ho for it until my mom said, Tanya, have you thought about this? Right. Have yeah. you really thought about what it's going to be like to see this guy and be alone in his van for two weeks or whatever? How, and how I was like, old were you? I, I must have been like 16 or something. Okay. And, and she was like, I'm not going to stop you. You're old enough that like if you really think this is a good idea, then like I trust you. But, wow. But I'm really worried. And I, I – so let me know how you think. And I canceled it. I was just like, yeah. you're right. This is weird. <laughs> well, it sounds like your parents did trust you. She did. Yeah. It's a lot of things. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's good. They must have felt like you were mature because like, you know, I have kids and like that, that <laughs> sounds like today that would sound like. So I still like, don't, I don't know. know. To this day, I wonder if she would have interfered at the last, yeah, at minute. last minute. Like, like if yeah, she was she, like bluffing. <laughs> she wanted to see you make the right decision yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed to like, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, so what were you getting, like, emotionally, what were you getting out of it? Like, why was this something you were spending so much time on? It was, it was definitely the social, the social relationships and the, the self-expression that I didn't have any other means for. I was in the art club at school and I was, uh, you know, taking lots of art classes and things, but, but I think I was always a writer and, you know, now if, if I was a teen now, maybe I would have hooked into fanfic communities and things like sure. that. But instead right. this was an outlet for, for the, all that energy of like, I really wanted to write things and connect with people. And this did both of those things. Right. Is, um, is there a pattern to like what you were writing? Like, is, is there a thing that you kind of tended to I do? I was definitely exploring different personality aspects of myself and different mm -hmm. character types. I mean, I think all role players do that. Like they try a, you know, a more... Uh, I don't know, outgoing type personality yep. and a more brash personality and a more demure and whatever. Um, and seeing what feels right for yourself. Right. Uh, which is a which is thing all teens do. Also, yeah, also part of growing ways. up. So exactly. it kind of accelerates that process a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And in the meanwhile, like getting to know some people that have similar interests, um, I, even though I don't actually know them in real life, um, but seeing like how they develop their characters. Right. It's a fun um, project. So, I mean, were, you must have been aware, at some point, just, just from the social aspect, you must have been aware of MMOs in the, you know, EverQuest, mm -hmm. Ultima mm -hmm. um, sense. Like, were you very curious about these, or did you think of them something different, or... So I was super curious. I was very sad at some points that I could that I, I, I did, I think I did try to play EverQuest, and just my computer couldn't handle it. Yeah. Um, and I was very sad about that. Mm -hmm. Um... So what's interesting is that towards the end of my mud uh, fixation, uh, so I started actually, I was in college and I was playing it actually too much. Uh, in my senior year of college, so I should have been old enough to see this, I got so addicted because there was a third thing that started happening, which was that I started feeling um, ego uh, being built up. Right. <laughs> so the, mud, the particular mud I got into uh, in between like, uh, because I started college at 17. So from 17 to, to 21, um, it's called Ayatolia and it's a, an edgy, like for-profit, uh, MMO, uh, sorry, mud. Um, but they have a system where theoretically mortals can become gods and, mm. 
they had systems behind the scenes to do this. And the gods were actually just volunteer community moderator slash event coordinators, basically. Um, but I, I don't know, somehow during my senior year thesis, I had this idea that I could, I could make it happen, even though I hadn't gotten to the maximum level, like that was impossible. It was like, you know, so many hours of grinding that I was just never going to do. But I started having like the spy network and they were starting a, a, a coup against the this, gods to like make wait, me wait. a god. And you had a spy network, meaning you like had actual people, like, were, like friends in the, in the, is this like in Eve the mud pyramid scheme. Type yeah. 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 Situation? It was exactly like that okay. where I was trying to, for whatever reason, maneuver and role play so well that they would turn me into a community volunteer how in the did, mud. How did you get so many people to follow you? Uh, the usual, like some of its favors, <laughs> charm. I don't, I don't, I, no, honestly, I don't know the usual. Like it's interesting. It's I mean, how does anyone persuade anything? Well, presumably everyone wants to be at the top, right? So. No, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think it's like, you know, why doesn't everyone start an indie studio, right? Like Right, but in the game, it's it's very, it's a little more direct, right? Like everyone has a level, <laughs> so usually... Well, but the gods aren't necessarily higher level. It's like it's completely separate. It, was, it started out as a, a silly, like, side project of mm. like, oh, it'll be fun. Like, I worship the god of secrets or whatever. So secretly, I'm going to work on this, this spy network slash cult and start a, a mythology about myself becoming a god or whatever. Um, but then it actually it started working so well that I was like, oh, yeah, let's see if it actually happens. I don't I know. See. Like, the maybe the actual owner of the mud will, like, do something weird if I get enough people to... Because to, oh, wow. he, he was coding and changing the game all the time. Right. Like, he was this active developer. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't unthinkable that if enough players uh, requested something strange that theoretically was supposed to be possible, that he would do something. Right. Yeah, um, forget that, that this is, like, a conversation kind of between the players and the... Yeah, yeah, the mud, right? exactly. Like, which later I was very fascinated to see that happen or around the same time actually seeing that with um a tale in the desert right was, was really fascinating to see their conversation with players as well right um i mean what would you have direct communication with people who would run run these servers mm. like mm. how, how, did, how did it work exactly <laughs> Oh, it's, they would have aliases, uh, which we didn't know that they were different people at the time. So what we thought was that we could only, uh, talk with their minions. Mm. Um, it turned out that they could just turn into the minions whenever sure. they wanted to yep. later. But, um, that for like, uh, things like, uh, moderation, they would inhabit, they would puppet certain characters, um, for tutorial. Like if somebody was really stuck as a newbie. They could see that in like the the back end, it, it would like flag like, hey, this person's like really struggling, and they would puppet uh, like a helper to help right. get them out of that. Yeah. Um, but as far as you knew, you would only have direct access to the the quote unquote god you worshipped, and even then, it was very like unpredictable uh, when they would be on because they were volunteers. So right. it was just like, wait, was he, would each volunteer be one of the gods? Is yes. That the idea? Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and that's what you were hoping to become. You were exactly. hoping to become one of these guys. Well, I didn't understand at the time that they were like staff. Okay. I was just like going to try to do this thing. Uh, so uh, I almost lost my partner at that time. My boyfriend mm -hmm. was like, this is eating your entire yeah. life and you're not going to graduate college. Mm -hmm. What has happened to your thesis? And like, you're not even like acknowledging my, like I was so obsessed um, so I quit cold Turkey. My character committed suicide. Like I, 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 held, that process, I yeah. held a little community yeah. event of like, 
I'm a martyr. Um, <laughs> okay. Like, right. Your cult leader has has decided to perish. All right. Well, good for you for keeping yeah. it in character. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Got a role play. Yeah. Um, and then she was dead, and I finished my thesis, and everything was fine. Um, we got married many years later. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great. Good. Good. Um, I was glad he he saved me in a lot of ways. But then I did become a staff member. Well, I was I was about to ask <laughs> when you say about coming to God. I mean, it's like the the ultimate way to do that is to like run your own server. Is that something that you thought about? Yeah, I mean, I had volunteered as a content designer. I didn't have that name at the time. Um, but through high school, I had dabbled in content design and quest design and NPC design um, for various nonprofit MUDs, like hobby MUDs. Right. But they hadn't really gotten anywhere because I realized now, looking back, what I really wanted was that that conversation with players. I really wanted players to enjoy it and, you know, getting to make a a few rooms in an unpopulated mud is not super satisfying. Right. Um, whereas later, uh, yeah. so a couple after college, I went and taught English in Japan for a couple of years. But during that time, I, in a more healthy way, reengaged. And I was like, hey, I could actually put in a few hours a week as a, as staff. I was like, you, hey, do you remember this character who tried to, to become oh, a wow. god, like, as a character? Like, I'm that person. Yeah. Like, would you be interested? And they were like, oh, yeah, definitely. So... It actually did end up happening. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and In the simplest fun. way. For a couple of, for a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So let's let's jump back a little bit. <laughs> I want just a couple of questions. Did you so role playing? Did you do tabletop role playing, or did that not seem as interesting to you? I had not done it until college, right. uh, which is weird to think in retrospect. Because, like I said, I had a boyfriend who was clearly right. into vampire and whatever, and I would have loved to do that with him. I don't know why yeah, teens are so dumb. Yeah, it's um, technically a lot easier, and you probably could find people, you know, around you to do it with. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was slightly gendered. In that, like, okay, sure. I felt like it was him and his guy friends, yep. and it wasn't a thing I could join. Maybe. Yeah. But I don't remember consciously ever having that thought. It was just like, oh yeah, I mean, my friends don't do that, and he he does do that. Right. Um, but I remember the hunger when I when I got to the college campus because I went to a traditional, expensive liberal arts thing, like looking for the posters on the door of like D and D is happening at this time, like looking for players, um, and being really excited to be like, oh, now I have my chance. Like I don't know why people sometimes just need permission. I guess I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's interesting. I just. <laughs> Absolutely, in my head, I was like, I wonder if there were a lot of other girls like you who would end up playing on a computer where their gender didn't matter at all. Oh, yeah. As opposed to, like, yeah, I, I you know, guys play D&D, and I'm sure it was difficult for a lot of girls to try to break into the boys, That's what into I hear. The boys group, you know? I, like, I had no trouble in college, but, yeah, in high school, maybe it would have been traumatizing. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean... You know, I mean, in junior high and high school, you know, I played some D&D, not a lot, but it was with my, my guy friends because I had guy friends, yeah. right? Like, eventually, I got friends who were girls as well, but, like, it wasn't, you know, it was just one of these things, right? You know, so, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's interesting that that... I, yeah, I just wonder if, like, it was your story is more common than you imagine. Probably, probably. I do know that um, among the, the female developers I know, um, a lot of us have... A lot of fond memories of, of MMOs, and I do wonder if that's connected. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you got to play D and D in in college. In college, yes. Made yeah. good friends. Um, it wasn't anything unusual, but okay. Probably helped for a while, at least, to 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 keep some kind of need for self expression sure. uh, satisfied. Yeah. Did you design? Do you think of like did you design stuff or 
dun dungeon master make modules doing stuff like that that's like game designy or a little i did a little bit of dungeon mastering i wasn't great at it um mostly because i was too socially anxious i okay. really didn't want to feel compared to my friends who are more experienced dungeon masters like because you know when you have your certain group of friends like if one person's been the dungeon master for two years and then you try it yep you you feel very exposed and vulnerable um, it was still fun but um yeah, I haven't done it since then, so yeah. I guess that's not my type of, uh, of activity. Yeah, and what did you study in college? Um, originally, I was a biology major, hoping to cure cancer. Okay. And then, yeah, microbiology class, I realized I was thinking constantly about my creative writing class, so mm. I, uh, I changed to an English literature major. Okay, and what did you, what did you think you were going to do? What did you want to do? I didn't know. I didn't know. I just knew. And, and again, my, my mom advised me to, uh, to do what I genuinely felt passionate about and, and especially interested in. Um, I figured there was enough writing that needed to be done in various things that I could find somewhere that right. I could write something. Like I was willing to write, you know, technical manuals for engineers if need be. Right. Were you still going to school? Were you going to school in California or someplace else? Uh, no, in uh, Portland, Oregon, Reed College. Oh, Reed. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, that's a cool college. Interesting college. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so you became you did an English major at Reed, and then after that, you said you went to Japan and taught English for two years, and that was the point at which me and my partner both had realized that we wanted to try to be game designers. Um, me, I thought I wanted to be a world builder. That uh, a, well, really, what I thought I wanted to be was a lore master because I read that that was a thing in uh, in at Bethesda. <laughs> okay. Because I loved Morrowind. Mm -hmm. And I thought that what I really wanted was kind of like what I had been doing in my head uh, for the MUDs, which was like building up uh, worlds and characters and areas and things like that. And, and in my mind, that was the, the wiki master at Bethesda. Um, and my partner instead was, was, was much, always much more uh, programming oriented. Um, but we both got into the same uh, graduate school for, for game design um, because oh, we didn't okay. want to try doing, uh, you know, quality assurance, which was the only other real path that we were advised to try in, in 2006. Right. Um, like trying to be a game designer in 2006. It was like QA or, well, there's these weird degrees that nobody knows if they do anything, but they right. they exist. Okay. Um, yeah. There's a, yeah. There's an interesting split because a decade before, I think a lot of people... Uh, would be like they'd be unsure that the video game industry existed. Yeah. Whereas at this period of time, you could tell their jobs. Yep. And so you. And I knew what a game designer was. Right. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Um, um, but it seemed like QA was was the main path everyone saw to become a game designer, right. and that seemed unappealing. Right. And there wasn't a very solid indie path. At this no, time. definitely so, not. You know, you felt like your best bet was like go to graduate school. Yeah, but where, so where did you where did you two go? Uh, the Guild Hall the Guild at Hall. SMU. Okay. Yep. Okay. And what was that? What was that like? Um, it was very trade school. Uh, extremely practical. We're going to help you get a job in the industry, which is understood to be AAA, uh, and therefore we will help you have the skills. Um, and your teachers are all experienced in that industry. And at the end of it, you'll have a portfolio and be able to apply to the jobs with confidence that you can get hired as a junior designer. Right. And 
it worked for that period of time, at least. I don't know what their hiring rate is anymore, but back in 2006 to 2008, it was like 98% or something. Wow. It was yeah. uh, very appealing to hire these graduates. Sure. I, I remember that time that it was like, it was interesting that there were schools doing this that had their act together. And yeah, I, you know, because most of, most of the applicants you know, did not have that type of background. So um, yeah, just being able to show that like I had made a playable level in yeah. four different engines, like yeah. that's very unusual at that time. <laughs> you, was there a specific project from your school time that you remember that's like interesting to talk about? Um, I would just say that that modding is amazing, and right. I I feel like. Did the program encourage a lot of modding? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's how good. you make that's your good. levels. It was like, if you if you want to get really into making your level cool, you're going to get into modding, you're going right. to get into scripting. And it was a really self-reflective moment when I, I was interviewing at um, oh, what's the company that, that was alternating making Call of Duties for a while. Oh, Treyarch? Or the other one, Infinity Ward. Infinity, Infinity Ward. Yeah. I was interviewing at Infinity Ward, and they were like, Tanya, we love you. Mm-hmm. But also, it is very clear you don't want to make a shooter. <laughs> okay. And I was like, excuse me? I just told you I did in the interview. Right. How dare I said you? said those words. <laughs> yeah, I said that I did, and I do. And they were like, look at your portfolio. And it was this moment of, of realization that, like, in every case, I had subverted the first-person shooter to try to make something else. Okay. Um, okay. So, like, I had taken the, the hammer engine from... Uh, from Half-Life 2 and instead made a an adventure puzzle with head crab experiments or something. And yeah. like it was the same for all the other engines. It was just like, oh yeah, I guess I don't. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um and uh but yeah, so where did you I mean where did you want to go and where did you apply and like what happened? I think what I really wanted was to work at Bethesda. That was my that was still my goal at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd heard that it wasn't necessarily the best place to work, but I didn't care. I wanted my dream uh, project. Um, but I applied at basic. I applied to probably a hundred places. I applied everywhere. But um, literally a hundred places. Literally a hundred places. Wow. Um, okay. But I got I think five or six um, final interviews and and three final offers, and they were all in retrospect, um, reflecting of my interests. They were like MMOs, which was right. also very big at the time. 2008 was a big, uh, all the investment was going towards, uh, yeah, MMO type games, but yeah, I guess maybe we, seems like we skipped over somehow. Did you, did you get sucked into like World of Warcraft or one of these giant? So you know, in Japan I did, MMOs? I did play it for a while. Um, but mostly just with my partner and they're mostly single player. They're, mm. they're not actually social games. Right. The, that whole, lineage of everquests post everquest they just got more and more single player right um so it didn't feel like the thing that mattered to you no i got into eve for a few months and i have a friend who who helped me uh get into that for a few months but but yeah i i'm excited to see it sounds like there's a couple of more ultima online style worlds on the horizon so i'm interested to see where those go as a designer but it all seemed like this weird kind of monkey's paw bargain the you know world of warcraft because like yeah it had insane popularity but the whole reason was because it it tamped down the mmo parts Mm -hmm. so you know what what was it exactly it's just the perfect progression and being visible in that progression to other people made it more valuable but ultimately that that has an end so yeah, for a couple of years I played World of Warcraft, but it was never an obsession. Right. Okay. Um, all right. So you got some job offers, and like, 
who are you choosing between and where did you where did you go? Uh, Arena Net, making Guild Guild Wars. Um, maybe they were secretly working on Guild Wars 2 at that time. It probably not. It was probably a little bit before that. Uh, Big Huge Games. Okay. And Funcom. Okay. And those were my three offers. Uh, Funcom's offer was much higher than all the others. It was mm-hmm. literally, I think, two or three times more than the original wow. that one. Okay. <laughs> um, but living in Scandinavia is very expensive as well. So, right. So functionally speaking. Functionally yeah. speaking, it wasn't as cra- crazily high, but um, it was still significant. And uh, the government required a raise shortly after that, actually, oh, um, okay. because they declared that the amount they were paying was not sufficient for, for immigrants to live on, actually. Wow. <laughs> Boy, what a different world. Yeah. We're from America. Well, <laughs> it, I, I believe that the analysis at the time was that that was actually a conservative move to try to discourage hiring immigrants. Oh, <laughs> okay. I guess In that, a strange way. That's yeah, sure. Uh, but as an immigrant, I didn't mind the sudden 10% unexpected raise right, like yeah. two months after I arrived. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I, guess I understand, yeah. Um, okay, cool. So you, you came to... Wow. That's a big. I mean, I guess you'd lived in Japan, so maybe. It so wasn't I lived so, in Japan. So so, so Funcom was in in Norway. Yeah. So I'd lived in Japan, went to Texas, um, yeah. which is hell. Uh, I mean, Plano <laughs> especially. Jesus. Um, and then Oslo, uh, which was wonderful. A good two years in Oslo. Right. Yeah. You didn't have any um, apprehension of moving to Norway, like. No. No, that was the reason I picked the the job. Um, my partner also got a job at the same company on a oh. different project. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah, he worked on the Secret World while I was uh, hired to Age of Conan, which I was excited about. I was actually very excited to see what was going to happen with Age of Conan, and then it super flopped. Mm. And I got a job on it, and I was sort of allowed to do whatever I wanted because a flopped MMO. Like, who cares? Did it, did it, wait, did it, <laughs> did it flop before you joined? Is that what yeah? It well, it, it flopped like so. It came out two or three months before I graduated. And so I was already in the interview process. Like I think I had applied just after it came out. And as a student, I don't think I had registered quite that it was a flop. I think it was Mm. just like, oh yeah, it was this memo I was watching for a while. I was a little disappointed by it. I don't know, but I I played it and it seems cool. Um, And yeah, it was a a wonderful place to start a career. Um, Right. Really going there and learning the ropes without the pressure. Right. Yeah, you were about you were about to say that like because it had flopped, it meant that that you could kind of yeah. There was almost no oversight. <laughs> I mean, they had some directions. And my manager was a very smart uh, designer who was very disinterested in management. Okay. So he was just like, uh, yeah, here's what I suggest you do, and we did that. And then he was like, so now what do you want to do? Right. Wow. And there we went. There wasn't. They weren't like panicking because it was not. Didn't have the so there were there was there were some layoffs. I remember this is two thousand eight. Yeah. So yeah. we they, everyone had layoffs. Then. Yeah, yeah. So they had had a flop, and then two thousand eight crash happened. Uh, the CEO was crying, mm-hmm. uh, laying off a bunch of people. It was mostly it mostly affected the the Secret World team, uh, which was struggling and, and a bit too big for the the scale the time of production they were in. Um, but it was fine for me. I was happy. <laughs> okay. So what were you? What were you doing? Like, I was. I was job? hired as an AI designer. Was my title. Okay. And I was supposed to use their proprietary tools uh, to use. It, it was a mixture of. Well, it was mostly visual scripting to script their uh, trash and and make new boss monsters for new areas. They wanted to patch in some new dungeons and things like that. Um, and so they said, okay, make, make some bosses and, uh, learn, but in order to do that, I had to learn their 20 different proprietary tools. 
Okay, so you had to learn all the tools to make their bosses. Do you, do you have, like, a memory of, of, like, I'm trying to remember my first job where there's, like, kind of, like, the weird mix of, like, feeling overwhelmed, but at the same time, like, looking for places where I could do things that were, like, felt like me or something that, like, I was, like, I feel like I see something others don't. Like, is there is there something you remember that you're, like, I want to do this, like, I, I, I want to do this thing, I feel like I'm going to prove the game in this way. That's, that's, that, um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I I do have a very clear memory of there was four hours on my my first or second day that I was convinced I shouldn't be a game developer. This was all a mistake. That was that was my my brief flirtation with imposter syndrome was was, I was trying because what happened? I don't know if you know, but testing content in an MMO is very difficult. You have to build and deploy to a server and test on that server. And uh, the tools they had made for that were mostly for for engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a theoretically, technically proficient AI designer, I didn't feel like I should be asking questions about what how to deploy to the server and <laughs> test my content. Um, it was very, very intimidating. But uh, it was fine. After a few hours, it was okay. Yeah, I guess we maybe skipped over your... English or creative writing, and but you were doing presumably a lot of like modding and stuff. Did you learn to program somewhere along the line here? Yes. So part of the the program at the Guildhall, which is the, the the degree is technically called interactive art or something like that, but the it's supposed to be level design. They're training you okay. in level design. And what I realized over the course of that um, was that game design is more powerful than strict just writing uh, in an interactive medium. Controlling the way the interactions work yes. is the most direct route to the player. Right. And so I became very interested in that, obviously. Um, and part of their trade school education um, was teaching us they they we do some environment art as a level designer and some scripting. And I really enjoyed the scripting. I, I learned like Lua as an extra credit kind of thing. Um, And that served me well going forward. I had taken a computer science class actually in undergrad, but it was completely theoretical almost. Oh, that's too bad. Almost completely. Like there technically was like a hello world type exercise element, but it was almost like, like what is the nature of a Boolean? Okay. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, right, right. Oh boy. (laughs) Which made me think, oh, I don't like programming. Right. (laughs) Um, did you did you sort of eventually get to learn like C plus plus or Java or C sharp or like... um, so in the programming course uh, that all the level designers uh, or not maybe not all but at least I opted into um, yeah you so Lua was the main right uh, language but I think we also learned some C plus plus yes some okay. some basics right okay so now you're at Funcom and you're trying to struggle you're struggling to like make sure that. <laughs> You can, you can use all these tools. Right. Um, so to answer your actual question, right. um, after I think the, the first six months to a year of making dungeons and bosses, I realized what I really wanted to see in the game, this, this game that I actually enjoyed as a player, was a way to effectively band together with uh, like other, like to have the guilds mean something and level up collectively. And... One other game had done guild levels. Um, there was a, I think it was a war. There was a Warhammer MMO around that time. Maybe there was something about uh, orcs. So anyway, the point is, one other major MMO had guild levels, not okay. World of Warcraft. Okay. And I said, we need to have guild levels, and this is how I want to do it, and these are the rewards I want. And one of the special things about Age of Conan was that guilds 
had these cities. Mm-hmm. And the original intent was that the cities would fight each other, which almost never happened for various reasons. Um, but I remember being so excited to propose that that they could decorate their cities and they could unlock new assets to, to mod, like, uh, to customize their city layouts and things like that. And, uh, I was given permission to that. I was given a little task force to, to make the guild level feature and, uh, it went way over schedule, um, (laughs) I don't think we had a project manager. It was just like me and, and an artist and a programmer. But okay, so how did you design it? Like, what? Uh, how did it work? Uh, it was it was just a it, in retrospect an extremely standard guild leveling system okay. where um, there were three different activity types. I think there was PvP type points and PVE type points and crafting type points or something like that. And if you did all three activities every day, you gave your guild certain. So, they would go tokens, and then they could spend the token. And then if they got certain levels, they would unlock new options for their guild hall city thing. Right. Um, but I did it as a as a like one year designer, and it was very exciting. Okay. Well, that is cool. How did it How did it turn out? It was good. It it seemed very popular with the the player base, as small as it was, um, and it definitely made the guild cities more populous for a while. Right. So it seemed to achieve the the goals that we wanted. Okay. What, so what were the issues with Age of Conan? Like if it, um, <laughs> there's so many issues with the Age of Conan. Um, the main problem of Age of Conan at the time of launch was that the tutorial area had been iterated on about 20 times mm-hmm. and was sort of next gen looking graphics and design and level design and and quests and things like that and then immediately you're tossed into a more like daggerfall style like giant world that's mostly empty Mm, okay um so players really reacted very negatively to that right um the other part of it is the other part of the i think initial flop was that they sort of had this tension between trying to offer a more rich multiplayer like setting where the different cultures really felt very different and and like there were interesting interactions between them maybe uh except that because the pillars of the game were combat combat and combat okay uh they didn't want to interact they this was the first and maybe only ever mmo uh with player collision oh okay so you could actually completely grief everyone on certain bridges and things block like that. You block it, and you could have a horse that kicks them off the bridge over the waterfall. <laughs> um, and it was interesting in a way because, like, that's an, a different multiplayer interaction than that's possible in most of the others, but also deeply unpleasant. So right. it drove a lot of people away. Okay, I mean, what was supposed to be the thing that defined Age of Conan? That's a great question. I think... Because I just remember there were all these MMOs, and I sort of vaguely put them in boxes of like, okay, WoW is the big one that's really single player, and Dark Age of Camelot has the different... Like, I guess they're like big into like the groups that fight each other. <laughs> My understanding was very vague, right? Um, no, that's about right. That's about right. And, 
you know, I don't know, I'm a, you know, Eve is like the, the, the crazy economic one where every, you know, every one is this giant crazy, uh, uh, a world that's, there's one shard, right? Like that's kind of the whole thing. But what, yeah, what was the thing with Age of, Con- with Age of Conan? Well, I think the sad thing is that it was sort of in between all of them that yeah. it, um, it had, it was supposed to have like higher fidelity graphics than a lot of them. It was supposed to have the the group the the massive army on army uh, fights, but it was also supposed to have the the rich setting of, of the world of, of Hyboria, mm-hmm. um, and trying to prioritize all these things against each other was was a, a big struggle for the production team, from what I understand. Right. Yeah. I mean, at a very high level, there were probably too much too many people making MMOs yes. at a high level at this yeah, period. Absolutely. Right? Like looking back, it's kind of like what was. You know, I mean, obviously we know what was going on. Wow, what was, was what was going on? But like, it's kind of crazy. Yes, um, and later you'd see the same sort of pattern with the the way Funcom developed the Secret World, which was uh, another very. Excuse me, the Secret World was a very interesting uh, MMO, very and actually more different, I would say, than a lot of the other ones. Um, it came some years later, but still it could not deliver on the promises that it had made investors so that's what was going to happen <laughs> yeah. okay all right so how long uh, did you keep on with age of conan it's a good question i think i was on age of conan for a total of three years okay, um, what happened next? yeah so i was on i was there for two years and then they shipped everybody over to quebec to take advantage of tax credits oh um okay. and so that's how i ended up in montreal Okay. And then after another and year, and when they told you that, presumably you had a choice. Yeah, theoretically, but it was highly incentivized, and we got like they were paying for all the moving, and it it felt like it would basically be a raise because cost of living is cheaper. cheaper. Yeah. Did you want to come back to North America, or I was happy to. Uh, at that point, I had moved continents every two years. Right. Sure. So I was ready. Kind of in that point of life. Yeah, exactly. fine. Yeah, no <laughs> well, big deal. Most of your stuff is just a few boxes. Yep, and, uh, and throw the rest away. It's yep, fine. Yeah. Um, okay. So we move to Montreal. I work a bit on Age of Conan and then and help it turn free, uh, free to play. Right. <clears throat> and then I spend a little while on um, a, a Facebook game called Fashion Week Live. Oh, okay. Which was funded, I believe, at least partially, by um, a famous makeup artist named Pat McGrath. And I got to go to Fashion Week, New York, okay. which is very fun for That's somebody cool. who has no idea what fashion is. Um, <laughs> this it, was for FunCon still? Yep, yep. Uh, at the tail end of the Facebook era. Okay, they, got, they had to try to get on that horse. Yep, yep. yep. The investors... Very excited. (laughs) And then that was kind of miserable for various reasons I don't want to get into. And but that was my my first stint with lead designing of trying to really like build a a game design from the beginning. Okay. Did you they come how did that process happen where you got you became the lead designer? Like were you like looking for this type of position or I was jockeying for some kind of Leadership, type. leadership, and 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 more seniority, um, and I wasn't sure Age of Conan was the right place to do that, uh, and I had been turned down for a producer position. Okay, but I think they saw that as a flag of like, oh, maybe we could use her in this other thing where we need uh, a lead designer, 
And not that there were any, I don't, basically the only designer, let's be honest. Okay. <laughs> All right. Lead in You can still call yourself lead designer. Eh. <laughs> I, wouldn't, anyway. I wouldn't now, but okay. back then it was very exciting. But you were the designer. Yes. Okay. I think they, they might have eventually gotten me a junior designer. I don't actually remember very well. They grew that team way too much. But we're getting off topic. Um, so after a miserable year or something, um, I went back to the secret. I went to to the secret world to help it ship, and I was able to sort of do whatever random loose like tie up ra- random loose ends in design. Um, and that was that was pretty satisfying. Okay, like what type of work? Um, at first there was a very clear checklist of like, we have these content design problems that nobody has cleaned up. So like Ragnar, the, the game director, he really wanted this plot that involved going to Antarctica. Antarctica is an E3 demo that doesn't really work anymore. Can you make it into an actual level with actual scripted sequence and like, tell us what, like make the asset requests necessary to make that level functional. Right. And then after those kind of tasks ran out, um, then I was able to, to think about more creative things like, okay, well, what if we had a, a player theater where people could repurpose assets to put on little stage plays and, and things like that? Um, yeah, it was fun. Okay. But Secret World was, from my, from my understanding of a non-MMO player, it was like the puzzle MMO. Is that right? It definitely had some puzzles. It had more puzzles than most MMOs for okay. sure. Um, and some like ARG elements as well, like puzzles that were so hard, you definitely needed to go check out with other players what was going on. Um, but it also in many ways was the most narrative MMO for the time. Okay. Um, it had writerly cutscenes and and sequences that you typically didn't associate with multiplayer games at all, um, okay. which wasn't really my taste, but... And that was like Ragnar's flair because um, he was mostly famous for um, The Longest Journey. And yeah, right. so he wanted to bring that like slightly cinematic feel to, to okay. MMOs. That's probably what I was sort of thinking along the lines of. But either way, both with narrative and puzzles, the thing I, I was always confused me when I heard attached to MMO was, isn't that just going to run out really, really quickly? Yes. So that was part of the problem um, is that... Again, it was sort of doubling down on the single player aspect, and then the the multiplayer was sort of tacked on a little bit to me. Is is my impression? I don't know actually that much about the the Secret World production, um, right. but yeah, I my personal taste is to to opt more for for deeper multiplayer. Right. Um, okay. So you did Super World for a while, and then is that when you started to work? So that's when, so after, after Secret World came out and disappointed the company, mm-hmm. right. the investors, um, they moved everybody again. They said, would you like to move to North Carolina? Oh, okay. Um, right. And I said, no, thank you. Okay. And that is when I discovered that there was an incubator to start companies, which I had never really thought about before. Um, mm. But my acquaintance, Jason De La Roca, mm. basically told me I needed to, to pitch him a, a team, and he was excited to fund it. So that's what I did. Um, I was also interviewing with Ubisoft at the time, but it was already, even in 2010, it was clear, or well, 20, I guess this was 2013. Yeah. Um, it was clear that that would be a very different path that would be treacherous for someone of my temperament. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I, I can't imagine working at Ubisoft. It just seems like joining the Navy or something like that. A little, a little bit like joining the Navy. On the other hand, 
one thing that I realized very early on in indie is that I did enjoy being a specialist. It's mm. it is a pleasure sure. to have the the unique joy of knowing that like you are the expert at this one thing, and even if you do occasionally wear many hats because anarchy and whatever, um, you still were the one who does the thing. Yeah, and that's not that's not the same as being the one who does everything. Right. <laughs> Yeah, some of the stuff you say you worked on. It's very specific features. Yeah. And you probably spent all your time thinking about just those features. Yeah. And, you and know, so, like, the position I was looking at it for Honor, um, I got along with the game director fairly well, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. And I would be doing level design for For Honor. And that would right. be pretty fun, making fighting arenas for an action game, I guess. I mean, it's not my kind of thing, but they at least had some role-playing elements there. Yeah. Okay, but you chose. But the, instead, you chose the indie path. <laughs> well, I, I chose to try it for six months. That was the agreement. Okay. Were you paying attention to the indie world at this point? Because at this, you know, twenty thirteen, there have been some successes, but not everyone was necessarily really paying attention. I was paying attention from an artistic point of view, not from a business perspective necessarily. So, okay. in to rewind just a little bit, my partner and I. Well, my partner especially was very active on TIG Source forums okay. in 2010. Right. 20, 2008 to 2010. And there was a particular game jam where we made a game together. It was like a one-month jam okay. um, that won some thing. And it seemed like indies across the world noticed. Like that particular right. jam, I don't know what was going on November of, of 2009, but... Um, there were all these devs in Montreal that were like, oh, this game's amazing, and blah, blah, blah. And what was the game? It was called Dungeons of Fate. And it was it later would basically become the prototype for Moon Hunters. Okay. Um, but it was a, a multiplayer, a, a co-op, um, one to four player. The, the, the Vision, um, which was my partner's actually, um, was a D&D &D, &D campaign compressed into an hour. Okay. And so it was supposed to be a very, like, I don't know, different, slightly different every time, little bite-sized uh, role-playing adventure. Um, and it, yeah, it, it won second place or whatever in the, in the competition, which doesn't sound like anything now, like jams are constant and everyone's winning everything every time. But for some, so for some reason, 2009, that was very important on TigSource. Um, right. Well, I'm sure it was pretty <laughs> <laughs> probably important for both of you as well, right? Just to see that it people good. were engaging yeah. with your work. Yeah, right? and so and when we moved to Montreal, what we discovered was that there was this um, culture of non-commercial um, indie game creation and appreciation. It's called the Montreal Game Society, okay. MRGS, MERGS. Um, and they met every month, and you could show anything you were working on. You could be an academic, an amateur, a AAA, whatever, like whatever you want. Just you, you have to be able to show the thing. Right. Um, but yeah, and it, it's hard to describe how mind opening it was for somebody like me who had been trained in AAA and and shooters and MMOs and whatever. Like even though I had made these games on the side, I hadn't really considered what it would look like for somebody to make a game as a gift for someone who broke their leg or make mm -hmm. a game that expresses this experience they had. Like it, right. it was really mind opening, um, in 2010 to see this kind of, um, culture. And I really thought of it as like a salon. Like it really felt like I was among like philosopher poets, right. uh, using games. Right. And I didn't think I was going to start a company. I thought it was just like on the weekends, I'll make side right. projects and they'll be cool and weird. Yeah. But then. So that's interesting. You weren't necessarily re reacting to like 
the world of goose or the you know super meat boys it was you were seeing these like really artisanal i guess like local projects that yeah i mean it was obvious i mean it, the indie game the movie was what 2000 was that 2010 probably that sounds about right and it was about 2008 right yeah. so so at this point these games were known. It's not like I, I didn't know they existed, but they just didn't seem that interesting. Okay. <laughs> you know, because I, I was in the world of AAA, and I was like, I'm really interested in these really personal projects, and I'm really interested in these, like, big, flashy projects, but I don't... I, I didn't necessarily um, have that much connection with uh, the games that seemed to be popular on uh, Xbox Live Arcade, which was the, the thing at the time. Right. Because um, most of those were, to some extent, like... Echoes of basically NES games, I guess, might be one way to put it. Like, they were, you know, obviously doing interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, and occasionally there would be a standout, like Puzzle Pirates. Right. Or, um, <laughs> or Oasis or okay. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but Puzzle I... Pirates is interesting. I mean, I totally get how you would go to that because <laughs> that's like the weird, multi, you know, yes. MMO one, right? <laughs> That was such a weird game. When I came to GD, I think it was my first GDC, I snuck in as an amateur. Okay, I never mentioned this before, but I was running a, an amateur hobby games journalism website called gamergirl.org. And okay. I snuck into GDC with a press pass. And in that GDC, um, that's when Puzzle Pirates won. And, oh, I, okay. and so I felt a little bit of a, an inspiration of like, okay, weird, cool games can, do, it. Yeah, can yeah. do things. And people in this arena are all cheering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was a really amazing game. I was super inspired by like just the weird way the economy worked in that game. And, you know, kind of letting the, the people bid on the, in the, in the uh, different uh, currencies back and forth. And, um, you know, all these games are kind of just jammed together and... Um, I forget that, like, yeah, sure, that should be considered part of the indie game, indie game movement, too. But, I mean, if anything, it was way harder what they were doing, right, than, you know, putting together a, you know, a small game for Xbox Live Arcade, right? Absolutely. And there's a reason why I haven't made many multiplayer <laughs> games, <laughs> even though that's where my heart seems to always go. Um, but, yeah, so in that era of 2013, um, I was instructed by the incubator that I was going to make a free-to-play mobile game. And that was what I was going to do. Instructed by. Mm -hmm. That was the requirement of the pitch. Like and so, for everyone pitching, this, yeah. that was that was the only thing they were yeah. interested. In, was a free that to was play their expertise, game. and that was what they were going to teach us how to do. But they were also going to teach us the basics of business, and they were like, "We assume you know how to make a game, okay. because like we are hiring people who are experienced at game development, hiring or we're, we're in, investing in these teams." Um, but we also assume you don't know that much about business development. So we're going to teach you burn rates and business plans and pitching and, and publishing models and things like that. Um, but all through the lens of free-to-play mobile, which was already getting a bit sketchy. Even 2013, I was like, I don't think this is a good idea. Yeah, that's I'm... so weird because, like, all the stuff <laughs> they're teaching you is so hard. But then it's, like, <laughs> ramped up by, like, a, fa a magnitude. It's, it's, it's just so much harder if you're also doing free-to-play, right? Yes. And that was one of the, the more distressing mentors they brought in. So they brought in a bunch of amazing mentors. Um, the, so like this is how I got to meet Jamie Chang and, and Rami Ismail and a bunch of other, and uh, Randy Smith and, and a few other people that were very inspirational at the time. Uh, but the most distressing mentor was the free-to-play expert because mm -hmm. he came in and he was like, none of these games will be good free-to-play games. Yeah, sure. It's like, it's, a, it's an extra difficulty to do this. Why are you doing this? Yeah. And we were like, we had to. Yeah, I was very obsessed 
with free-to-play games. It sets no, it's, I don't know the right term for it. <laughs> I didn't necessarily like them, but I just could... Fascinated. Yeah, I just could tell it was like there was this freight train coming for us, and it was going to run over the industry. And so I was like, I go, I know he's like, and I made, I made a Dragon Age Legends, like a free-to-play, you know, social game, kind of just because it was like... Well, they're, they're, it's a longer story about <laughs> not having a place for myself in the industry and having to found a you know independent studio so we could make the games I wanted to make. But um, but it just was like everything's going to change. And what I was really worried about is you can't just make a fun game like that's not the point anymore. Like now it's it's you know like you can't separate the business from the design, right? I mean, obviously that's always been an issue, but it's just. Like I'm automatic it too differently with with free to play. Um, Absolutely. And you know, you know, like the game designers have to be thinking in terms of of okay, we've made this part of the game fun, but it's too fun. <laughs> right? <laughs> we have to make sure that they have a reason why they're going to pay. And I don't know. It just sounded like a, a kind of a nightmare. So yeah, I, I paid a ton of attention to it because basically I didn't want to get sucked into this type of thing. Um, well. My solution at the time was I, and I told them this up front, I didn't try to be deceptive about it. I said, I will make your free to play mobile game, but I will also make a premium Steam game at the same time that is the same in almost every way. Okay. And we pulled you, that off. Did you have a sense? So, did you have any sense then that your, your free to play mobile game was like doomed to fail, but you didn't really care? But, well, I've, Honestly, the more I looked into the business side and the more I learned and researched, the more I felt like it, they were both doomed. But mm -hmm. at least the premium Steam game would be more relevant for my future titles. Because right. one of the, the lessons that I was glad they imparted very early was to think about it, to always be thinking about the next game, always be thinking about the trajectory of the studio, not just focus on the, on the one title. And so it was, it was easy from a holistic sense to say, well, I know that, that, that I don't want to make more free-to-play mobile titles. Like right. I was willing, I'm willing to tolerate learning enough about it to not reject it outright. But the more I learn about this, the more I can tell that it's a type of design I don't enjoy. What did the guy say who came to you, who told you your game was going to work? So or none he, of these games are going to work. Like what it's not quite what he said, but... Um, he just, he was clearly, he was the one of the more, most critical mentors, most honest. Like he was clearly being very um, kind with his, his he's issues. being very sincere. Yeah. yeah. Um, his concerns. Um, I mean, he's probably correct. Right. Yeah, I'm not suggesting yeah, anything. Yeah, like yeah. it's like, just like, what was he? Yeah. Like he was just trying to impress the general philosophy that like you have to make an experience that someone wants to have for a for forever <laughs> like, right, yeah. you have to make something that is so perfectly made that someone will play it for a thousand hours and you're making you, a hobby yeah exactly exactly and that's not what any of us were making um some of us were trying more than others <laughs> yeah um but yeah so we ended up we we shipped the mobile version of shattered planet um only a couple months after it was scheduled, uh, we were only a little bit delayed, and then the Steam version three months later. Right. Okay. Well, it was a smart move because I. Uh, we I, went through Steam, Steam green light. You went. Oh, you went through Steam light. Wow. That's right. <laughs> I mean, Shattered Planet, Shattered, Shattered Planet is presumably still up on Steam. It is. It where, is still making us, you know, two bucks a month or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is, I assume, more than the mobile version is making. Oh yeah. Now. No, that shut down almost immediately oh. because. <laughs> 
the amount of effort it takes to just maintain having a mobile game in the store was right. prohibitive. Yeah, to keep it updated. Yeah, well, even just and... updating the versions, I think that first it, the store be, needed an update. Like we'd have to patch it with the yeah. new version of the, the APK or whatever in order for the store to work. And we were like, we don't care. Make everything free. So we were like, have as many as you want. Uh, but then, yeah, the game itself started throwing warnings if people downloaded it there that it was it was probably not going to work. So we just took it down. Yeah, I, I was also very interested in mobile games when they came out, just because it's like, oh, here's like this completely new platform. You know, how often does this happen, right? But you know, I also quickly realized that like, for my own priority, like what was important to me, I didn't want to make something that was just going to disappear, right? Um, yeah. And there was just no getting around the fact that like. And in fact, it ended up being much worse than I even anticipated, right? Like now the, the app store is just like randomly running around, just like deleting games, you know? <laughs> it just seems like there are all these old games I remember that were kind of cool that are just are literally gone. Genuinely lost. Yeah, and they, it's not like because they had a server-side thing. It's just because Apple can't be bothered to like have some emulation mode or whatever, which, you know, it's like they have zero respect for their own platform. Yep. You know, it's crazy. Well, Apple is not a games company yeah. and never has been and never will be. Yeah. They're, you know, that. I guess that, I shouldn't say that on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the, the DNA from Steve Jobs runs, yes. runs deep on that, on that thing. Apple just, is excellent at many things, but their origins are not as a game company. Yeah, for sure. Um, and neither is Google. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if Nintendo made phones, we'd have a, a different world. Yeah. Well, we can, we can say a lot of things about Steam. But they're a games company. They are a games company, uh, sort of. <laughs> they were a games <laughs> they were a games company. company. That, that, that is the point. There are right. game developers there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they deeply care about games, right. and they don't necessarily do everything perfectly. But they actually, in my opinion, they're the platform putting the most effort into trying to help players find new games yeah. to play. Yeah, and I'd, I'd rather have less success and make less money, but know that like thirty years from now, I could actually like have my like grandkids play my game and it's a I don't know it's to me that's more important yeah. um, and of course who knows maybe steam will die too but it just seems clear that like you know mobile games were not the place to do that yes um, much more ephemeral from the beginning yeah um it's just it's just such a shame you know because like all all games should be valued you know? I agree um but okay so you cleverly made a steam let's talk about shadow <laughs> planet all sure right? um so how did you decide what game you wanted to make and like what was what was what what happened here? Well, I I pitched my my teammates in the incubator. Uh, mm. first, originally we were going to make a, a fallen Camelot game. Um, okay. I was always interested in RPGs, but this particular one, my pitch was that I was really compelled by the first 20 turns of civilization. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> that was my pitch, is that okay. I love the fog of war. Right. When and everything is not visible. Right? When everything's not visible, it's all darkness, and you discover what the world is and how it works by wandering, by exploring. Yeah, like okay. that very fundamental act. No of, wonder you mentioned Oasis. It yes, like a game you liked. Right? I loved Oasis. Um, it's it's almost like a, a minesweeper situation, yep. right? Um, and in some ways, Civilization is like a minesweeper if you think about it long <laughs> enough. Right. Um, and I didn't, and then we're like, okay, and we'll add some RPG. We'll, we'll make it a light RPG fog of war thing. And initially, initially there were actually more civilization elements about like building things. We, we cut those for scope oh, really? and whatever. Yeah. 
Um, we quickly realize when you add RPG elements to a fog of war, and actually we didn't realize this as quickly as we, we slowly, very slowly realize that when you add RPG elements to a fog of war explore them up, it's actually a roguelike. <laughs> well, I was about to, I was just about to ask that because when I played Shutter Planet, I was assumed that this this the. The, you know, I assumed that it was originally designed as a roguelike. Or that it was took like some months to realize because we really were making more of a civilization like we thought. So you accidentally made a roguelike. Yeah, we reinvented the roguelike. Had you played roguelikes? Some. I can't remember which ones I would have played. Um, I mean, I must have been aware. I was aware of, of NetHack and, and Rogue. Um, I mean, to some extent, Diablo is a roguelike sort of, right? Yeah, so. I hadn't played much Diablo, but okay. I knew about it. Right. Yeah, I guess it seeped through, but yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, okay. So yeah. You, <laughs> you sort of accidentally end up, I mean, part of, you know, like a lot of, people talk about roguelikes a lot, but a lot of the basic elements are not particularly special, I guess. I mean, it's just like randomness, procedural. Things are a little bit different. Consequence. And consequence. You know, like, like I think it, it's somehow like all those things came in but one package you know, in with with Rogue, and, and it, it kind mm -hmm. of like beyond that, it kind of preserved itself in a weird way, like a like a language that just never changes or something. And so it was kind of like there all along for people to kind of rediscover. But I think if there hadn't been Rogue, it's not like we wouldn't be learning that like procedural, you know, procedurality or whatever or consequence mattered, right? Mm -hmm. Like we just we would we'd still, still have procedural consequence games. Yeah, uh, we might call them something else. Right. Yeah. But yeah, they came through RPGs, so yep. here we are. Yeah, okay. And then we added a stronger meta progression um, to help with the, the frustration, uh, which was uh, hot for a couple of years there um, due to short-term analytics favoring. Um, right. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that for Shattered Planet because it kind of felt like a game where I wasn't sure how how well I should have been doing. Yeah. Um, you know, I was kind of like, oh, okay. I, I, I get, I, you know, I'm, get, I'm, I'm making some choices here that are making things better, <laughs> but it also feels like there's just no way, like the math, the math is just not there. Like I, I you know, I hit something, it hits me back. I'm going to run at hit points. I guess I can drink one of these random things and hope that it heals me and then I die. But, oh, okay, now I've got something a little bit more powerful. And like, is that the game? Like, was that the intention? Yeah, so the and I do think that this is some of the the mentorship and and thrust of the incubator that was seeping into everything. Um, that we were guided to look at uh, analytics and playtesting and and things like that to make the most compulsive loop possible, and that definitely led us to to meta progression and and mm. rather than focusing necessarily on clear feedback and and clear. Uh, ways to improve it was more just like oh try again and you'll probably do better and once you understand that like oh the next time I did do a little bit better like then I, I guess play for 100 hours uh, please <laughs> right when, when, <laughs> just I, not a super healthy relationship yeah I mean when you say rely on metrics like what exactly you, what exactly you mean do you mean rely on the fact that people were talking about games that succeeded this way or are you talking about metrics within your with your own game or like what can you be more specific exactly what you're saying? So I'm pretty sure we maybe we weren't required to in, to build in an, like actual analytic tools into the game, but it was 
basically required. Um, so I think we really were in the, the 2013, well, it's probably 2012 or whatever loop of, of trying to get the numbers up, of trying to get more sessions, more hours played, more, more points, whatever, that people just play the game more. Right. And we designed towards that in a, in a very shallow way. Okay. So you got, you, you actually had that cycle of, you got the game out there. Some people were playing it and, you know, you added that, you know, you basically kept adding things so that the player would be stronger from playthrough through playthrough. And that was, that was effective. Yeah, effective enough. <laughs> right. Um, effective enough to, for us to, to get also a qualitative, like positive feedback of like, Oh, if we take the game away after 20 minutes, people seem like they still want to play it. So that's good. <laughs> right. In retrospect, what do you, what do you think should have been done with that game? In retrospect, I think there were multiple problems with the way we developed it. And Moon Hunters was sort of a very clear reaction to a lot of that. So defining like, well, why was exploring the darkness what I was interested in? Like, what is the player experience there that I was actually trying to capture? And does that fit RPG mechanics at all? And if so, why or why not? Um, Instead, instead of following this, this moment to moment, uh, emotion and nostalgia that I had, it'd be much better to think about the, the game a little bit more holistically. Think about, I'm, I'm one, I'm a tree designer, not a forest designer by nature, Mm -hmm. but I've learned through the years to, to get better and better about thinking about the forest and, and thinking about overall, like, why is the player playing this game? What are they interested in about it when they start playing it and trying to design towards that? Um, because Shattered Planet, both on the marketing side and the design side, I think, um, suffered from, yeah, looking at the minutia and not thinking about the, the gestalt, I guess. Right. Okay. I'll say one thing I did think was really cool about it was the um, how the uh, tiles, you know, basically dissolve and, like, disappear and that was basically a replacement for the food mechanic in the roguelike, right? Uh, I don't even know if you did that on purpose, since you said you kind of designed it accidentally. Well, well halfway through, we realized it was a, it was a roguelike. And yeah. so that's the point at which the mystery potions appeared. Yep. And, and we were like, oh, and we definitely need some kind of time limit of some kind. Uh, right. Yeah, so the the world dissolving. I, I do believe that was our replacement for hunger. Yeah, it seemed like an elegant solution, because I always just thought hunger was like... Kind of <laughs> not... It's not the best. I mean, whatever. I, I, I prefer your guys' solution in, in this in this situation. Thank you. Um, but okay, so that's it. So once you realized you'd accidentally made a roguelike, then you really started. You actually looked at like, okay, well, what are all, was that a, like from a market perspective? Like, if people are going to come to it as a roguelike, they're going to expect like like unidentified potions, or was it? It was much more of a hey, like how could this game gel? Like, let's look at like other ways people solve these problems of like, well, what else can be different between playthroughs or, you know, what does the red potion do is, is a good example of one. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, if you're saying that, you know, some of the things you wanted to, you know, you kind of see moon hunters as like a, um, an iteration on that. Um, then yeah, let's talk about moon hunters. So was that, was that what was next? Yes. So midway through, or I guess towards the end, or around when we were making our beta build of Shattered Planet, 
I heard about the Square Enix Collective, which mm. was a initiative Square Enix had taken on to try and boost indies. And mostly it was a PR move on their part, but mm. it promised to bring a lot of eyeballs and uh, make a few indies uh, yeah, get the Square Enix audience's attention. And so I cold emailed them saying, can I pitch you a game to be in your first cohort? And they said, yes, but you have to do it in 48 hours. And so from the beginning, I thought about the game a little bit more from a, a marketing standpoint. Based on my experiences with Shattered Planet thus far, I'd been trying to you know, beat the drum and learn community management and marketing and pitching Shattered Planet. And it was very clear to me that I didn't have I didn't have any idea what was unique about Shattered Planet. And I mm. didn't n- know how to describe what was good about it. Like some people like this game was kind of the best thing I could say <laughs> about it. Um, and I could describe what it was, but that's not the same as a hook. Right. Whereas Moon Hunters, uh, from the beginning, I, I really was thinking about it more as a product design of like, okay, a one to four player game that is a, a unique role playing adventure every time. And this was where I, I also I got permission from my, my partner to sort of use Dungeons of Fate that we'd made a few years earlier as the, the prototype basis and inspiration because that was very successful and memorable and, and beloved by certain people and, and give it um, a setting and, and develop it into a real game, basically. When you say you want it to be different every time, um, where, what are, what's, the, um, what's the range there? That you're thinking of exactly well the ideal of any procedural designer is for it to be so meaningfully different <laughs> um for moon hunters it's it's really just the world map that's different um but the encounters what i wanted was for the player to encounter a world that was not only different, but that they could respond to differently and explore different versions of themselves and role play different personality traits themselves within that world that was uh, reactive to that. So they could play through one world map and, and feel like they weren't sure what was going to happen next, but if they wanted to be to be playful or or violent or flirty or whatever that that the world would would be interested in what they were trying to do right um so one of my reactions to moon hunters is i would um i was like wow this this feels like some weird mix of of like you know like a diablo style game and like king of dragon pass (laughs) And um, I loved King of Dragon Pass. You you had played it at that point. I had. Okay. How did you find King of Dragon Pass? Because it's like a notoriously kind of like lost game. You know, I in, think it was just time. recommended to me. Ba- people, based I suppose on people, at this point you could get it on the internet, right? Maybe. Yeah, I might. I must have been. Yeah. Because yeah. I think I had to like eBay a copy back when I first encountered it or something. Yeah. No. I mean, I it was already quite old by the time I played yeah. it. Um, but people had recommended it to me based on my tastes. They were like, based on what you're talking about, I think you'll really like this game. Okay. And that's how I ended up working with David Dunham later, um, is reaching out to, to that designer right. and, and ta- telling him about how I admired his his work. And then he needed a publisher for, for the next game. That was cool. Right. Okay. What did, you, um, what did you like about King of Dragon Pass that like made it work for you? I, I really loved their generated characters. I... 
I continue to be very fond of these these strange people <laughs> that it creates and that they age and die and have opinions about what I'm doing and and that they have their own squabbles and commentaries and and that's my favorite thing about it but I I also have a lot of fondness now as a result for the the world of Glorantha the, right. the setting uh, that King of Dragon Pass uses the the richness of that world I think really affects my fondness for the systems, even though I'm theoretically just choosing numbers of goats in some of the simulations, it, it feels more meaningful because I know about the God Wars and, and the goat people and <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the, like, to me, it's like two things I saw in Moon Hunter is like, like the, the, the one that gets you right away is like somehow the art style like felt kind of like in that, that vein, right? So I made that connection. But then it also was kind of like intentionally very opaque narratively where I'm like, okay, I'm making choices and stuff is happening and I'm going to have to resist my, my desire to understand like why or where this is going or exactly what's happening here. Um, which, uh, you know, is, is not, not like I know how I normally play, play a game. And it was just interesting to be, to, to be, matched with something that's much more kind of like like a more crunchy gamey game thing right um and uh so yeah anyway i'd like just to hear like how would you how you develop the you know the characters and the narrative and the the whatever you call it i guess i'm not sure what you exactly describe it as or what were you trying to do you know yeah, I mean, what I was I was trying to make this was my first real attempt to make a, a fictional world. Right. Um, I mean, Shattered Planet technically had one, but it's it's very thin. Um, whereas Moon Hunters, I really dove in there and took the time, and I, I made you know a mythology and a backstory and a and a a whole attempt at making a culture like a few cultures with different. Um, cultural practices and, and, uh, touch points and things. And they were the, the main touch point at the beginning was the ancient Assyrians, mm -hmm. uh, which is the main reason I think that it actually evokes King of Dragon Pass because it's very unusual to look at the ancient world and not evoke, uh, Greeks or Romans or things like that. Sure. You go back even farther. Yeah. yeah if right. you go back a little farther then you get back in, you get into Glorantha territory. Yeah. Um, and, I just went about it trying to make a world that I thought was, was interesting, I guess, um, that would sort of accommodate this uh, exploratory, faux nostalgic vibe. And I don't think all of it was super intentional to begin with, but as the game developed, um, not faux nostalgic, that's not the right term, um, over the course of development, it became clear to me that there was a there was a connection between telling a story over and over in slightly different ways based on, on the heroes and what they do and this kind of fondness for the ancient past and pixel graphics. And, and these things are, are connected emotionally in a way that that's like about remembrance and it's about how we tell stories to each other and what memories we make out of it and what the reality might be be more abstract or less abstract depending on the, on the situation but it, what matters is what you experience in that moment and and that's what I I was 
spiraling around trying to find with moon hunters and not always with great success. I, I have some, some design regrets. Um, but it was definitely my most, uh, coherent work to that point. Right. I mean, to me, it feels like it's a game that really makes you feel like a story is being written while you're playing. Like, you know, like we, you know, we say a lot as designers, like, Oh, the, 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 the player is creating a story. They're creating their own story and that's what makes games special. So on and so forth. But like, it feels like moon hunters makes them very explicit. Right. Like, you know, it's, you know, you're taking actions and then it's like literally writing out the story for you, which, you know, I found really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, it's sort of the one of the, the main question marks. If I were ever to make a Moon Hunters 2, I would definitely want the, the legend of your hero to be much more clearly given as feedback throughout the play session instead of just stamped at the at the end. Right. Um, well, you get the sense of like, these are the traits I'm acquiring as I go through. Um, I guess it is true that like a lot of that stuff only at the end you're like oh yeah right I remember that, and that yeah and that. yeah which isn't as fulfilling I think right yeah um, and the the how much do the traits affect things well that was uh, part of my talk today actually okay um, was I intentionally made that very asymmetrical um, some of the traits have huge effects on certain plot lines and other. And other traits, depending on what your world situation is, if you pick a certain trait, it might have almost no effect at all. Um, but, like, there's certain encounters that you can only complete if you have certain traits um, and certain choices that have massive unlocks associated with certain them. Certain encounters meaning, like, the the verbal encounters or whatever. Like yeah, the, the little like random, the little random, random bits, story bits. Uh, okay. Um Yeah, there were these little, like, oh, if... I think your character even thinks to itself, like, oh, if only I were a bit more brave or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I was just about to ask that, like, because I think that's a really interesting choice that, that people make when you're making these type of games. Uh, it's something we thought about a lot with Old World of when we, you know, when an event happens, if there are a couple options that get unlocked, do we show those options to the players? Do we show them? Should they be grayed out? If they're grayed out, do we explain why they're grayed mm -hmm, out? Mm -hmm. Like there's all sorts of different ways to do this yep. and they all get, create a different feel. So what were, what, like, what, where did you fall on this, this uh, spectrum? So we added those very clear signposted, uh, like you can only do this if you have this trait at the, almost the very end of development. And we did it explicitly to encourage the, the player to, 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 to think about how the world might be different based on their traits. Because one thing we were seeing a lot with players up until that point was that we had been so opaque right. <laughs> that they weren't convinced their traits had any effect. Right. Um, whereas if they would just play through another time or two, uh, they would see that there's not only this very obvious signposted thing, but there's other subtle things that, they might realize are also happening that are different. And that was the term that I, I now use to describe this is called system suspense. When you're not really sure, like, where does the system end? Like how deep does it go? How nuanced is it? And you're not sure as a player and you're, you're trying to, to feel it out and sort of dance with the designer a little bit to, to push at the edges. And I wanted to, to prolong that on purpose. Right. 
that you know they could imagine all the stuff that's out there, whether it was really there. Exactly. Or not. They they could imagine yeah all sorts of subtleties of the the different potential outcomes of their traits um, and the different outcomes of different choices because hey that one time I made that choice that guy showed up in my camp the next day like that's weird that didn't happen before and etc. But one thing is that a lot of I guess ultimately a lot of the stuff boils down to. I mean, please explain how it works, (laughs) but like, you know, there's that side of the game and then there's the combat, right? Where there's like maybe six values or something, right? And so a lot of the traits kind of, I assume, kind of get boiled out into those numbers, essentially, or or not. The traits don't affect that at all. They don't actually. No, they're completely decoupled from that. So what do the traits do then? (laughs) Uh, They make certain encounters work differently. Okay. that you'll have different options or just different encounters will appear. Um, and the different encounters could lead to things that yes. could like affect your yes. traits, essentially. But they could also it. just be an intrinsic, like, oh, I got to see this weird weirdo, right. um, which I didn't get to see before. Right. Okay. I see. I mean, another thing I thought was really interesting is just the, the start screen for the game, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of ways to unlock stuff. Um, but, you know, you really signpost just like this is all the stuff that's out there um, and, you know, it gives you a sense of like what, you know, what small percentage of the world that you're seeing. Um, yeah. And, and that was actually added in post-launch. Um, oh, really? Okay. At the initial launch, we saw that people underestimated how much there was out there. And I actually took the solution from my partner had been working on Dungeons of Fate as a separate like side project that whole time Mm -hmm. um, on weekends now and then. And at some point he added and like a little achievement garden or something um, in Dungeons of Fate. And it it was clearly very appreciated by players. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense with us unlocking the constellations as well. We should have you like literally be seeing the stars. But before we had this, the start menu actually running around in them, it was, um, it was just a menu. It was right. like a menu of constellations and just deeply unfulfilling uh, compared to the diegetic like mm-hmm. walking around in them. Right. Okay. Um, how many different... Uh, so for the, how did the combat design evolve like like what was that did it evolve (laughs) it's pretty basic um what i initially wanted due to world building and things was to represent different uh cultural like character archetypes um with the different character classes and in order to do that we had to have a wide enough variety of attack styles right. to support at least some abilities and, and we knew we wanted some kind of progression with the, the skills or whatever ultimately i don't think it was ever deep enough to, to support real interest um but it was uh in many ways undernourished i think as a design because my interest was in the other half the right. the storytelling and the characters and the and the narrative procedural whatever was much more interesting to me and in retrospect i should have spent a lot more time and energy really thinking about the the design of the combat itself because by the time we got around to like okay so how do we make it good We're like oh we'd have to make it very different right <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I was trying to, I guess, figure out with the, the traits, where I was like, wow, there seems like there's really, 
there's a really intricate system going on here where there's this story generation and traits and kind of some nice writing and different things can happen. And then I go into this combat and I'm not really sure, you know, how the two are related. Like the camp thing is kind of cool. I get that. Like that, that, that's neat. And that seemed to have some hooks for the story. So, uh, you know, I could kind of get that. But then, yeah, a lot of the rest of the stuff, it felt, it felt a little disconnected. So. No, it was mostly filler. It was uh, intended, especially in multiplayer, to have sort of a, a bit of a pacing break. That it's nice to, to have something to do in between the storylets that um, maybe you're choosing where to go or, or, I don't know, how much to engage with the, I don't know, progression or currency or whatever. Um, but ultimately, I think that's one of the weaknesses of the game is that they're that this that the combat is mostly just a filler activity rather than like intended as a an intrinsic pleasure. <laughs> right. Is that would that be an issue for players who maybe were not skilled enough, perhaps, I suppose, right? Probably. Um I mean I didn't want to attach the traits to it because I didn't want people to choose their role playing based on uh, min maxing okay. pressures, and that would right. come back again in Boyfriend Dungeon, actually. Sure. Um, I, well, I, this was like a, a good chunk of my time on Spore was spent arguing about this issue mm-hmm. um, because uh, this was the whole creature editor, you know, vehicle editor issue is that, like, oh wow, the player expression here is just off the chart, but this is a game, right? So, shouldn't all these things matter? And every time you try to make it matter, then like the you know the player expression just just collapses, and it's like, well, what's the what what type what are we making here? Like, why are we why are we sucking out the best part of this game, right? Um, and it's weird because like the as a game designer, you know that like the, the two parts need to like interact, right? Like <laughs> otherwise, there's a big problem. But but yeah, I, I, I absolutely understand what you're saying, like. You don't want people just trying to solve the combat problem with the story. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in an ideal world, and maybe, I mean, if I ever make Moon Hunters 2, let me know whether this is a lie or not. But I think that the best activity wouldn't be going and murdering the wildlife in between the storylets. Like, I don't think that that's actually gameplay that makes sense as a filler. Like, survival gameplay would make more sense, or a traversal gameplay would make more sense. Um combat was an easy go-to for various reasons um it it's especially because it, based on the prototype in dungeons of fate it's it's very um yeah. you had a rpg combat was it you who had a twitter thread recently that was like you shouldn't rely on combat as a default mechanism it was uh it was why designers always rely on combat <laughs> as a default mechanism yes it was talking about this this death spiral that i have gotten into multiple times of uh just sort of seeing it as a as a very welcoming shorthand with players to do some pr- progression skill t- either as a skill gate or as a progression gate or just as pacing break uh combat is a very easy go to right okay well let's 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 talk it out then let's 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 talk about Hunters 2 <laughs> and how you would how you would do this now like oh no well, I think the core idea of the camp would probably be actually extended into the original idea, which was a city. That's actually what it was in Dungeons of Fate as well, is that you were building this little town, this little civilization, um, 
and you'd go out on a like a pilgrimage or travel somewhere and that would be the real challenge is like trying to get to the place you're trying to go and bring back whatever reason you were going there in the first place whether it's resources or knowledge or uh, people or something there's some reason you're, you're a hero going out there and we were originally uh trying to evoke uh, gilgamesh who was a king and went out on adventures yep. and came back and so yeah we'd probably try to to go closer to that and part of the problem is that a lot of traversal mechanics are not super interesting to me i've never been interested in platformers sorry mario um <laughs> But I am somewhat more interested in some survival games. So maybe there could be camping along the way to, that influences how that that resource bring uh, pilgrimage works out. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, do you need filler? Yes, I would not enjoy. I'm trying to think through. I'm trying to think of, a pure story. Well, it's something like, like I'm like, okay, eighty days. Is the suitcase the filler? <laughs> like, is that is that the thing? Because it isn't just story. You have you're also trying to like the suitcase is move, the main thing. You you know move your stuff between a little things. bit of economy. Yeah, which people hated the time limit on on that. Oh yeah, uh, I, um, very controversial. Uh, one one of the. One of the few arguments I've had in the, this podcast is with John over the, <laughs> the timer on the suitcase. There you go. There you go. I thought it was absurd that he <laughs> he wants us to feel that way. Yep. We got to I understand. Like, okay, this is this was your intent as a designer. <laughs> you want us to feel unsettled that you didn't pack the night before. And it's funny you mentioned. You know, you could pack the night before. I'm like, what? You can you can do that? It's like, it's like your mom told you. You know, you should pack your suitcase the night before. Um, anyway, go ahead. I loved 80 days, um, but there's two thing. There's two parts to why I would have a different filler than suitcases. Um, one is that I think I'm just a bit more restless than than the Inkle people. I just I want more movement. I want more avatar right. control um, somehow. Uh, the other part of it is actually multiplayer. I think I would. I, I think that the real joy of Moon Hunters is in multiplayer. I don't know if you got to try it co-op, but it adds something special to it. And in order to have effective multiplayer, you have to have this uh, this nothing time. You have to have this time where you're not doing anything really, not not with your brain. Um, and that lets you get into more of a bonding space with the people you're playing with. Right. Okay. So that that's. That makes sense. I unfortunately I haven't played a multiplayer. I've only only played a single player. That's most people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is another weird question, right? Like you know, you're not you're not just designing the abstract. You're designing for the fact that you know whatever eighty percent of the people are going to be playing a single player. Um, how did the story stuff work if there's multiplayer? Uh, you vote. You vote. And okay. then there and then the person with the highest charisma. Oh. No, the, the with the. With the charming trait, I don't remember what exactly it is. Um, they win ties. Okay. Um, so it's very clear who like the party leader is is the person with the most charm. Yeah, right. So when they're in the village, presumably in combat, they each have their own character roaming around. Yes. But and then in the, the village, village, it's uh, it's like a secret of mana style. Like you're stuck on the same screen together, um, but anybody can talk to to any of the NPCs, and then you'll both be able to vote on the thing. But you'll only see like the character who talked to the NPC will like appear on the screen. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. No, that that does sound like it could be interesting. So, getting back to Moonhunters 2, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, some sort of survival mechanic. 
But does that just mean you're you're looking around for you know you're looking around for whatever? Um, you're not punching trees. Not Please, punch- no tree punching. <laughs> Um, but maybe you're looking for a good place to camp, or maybe you are mapping. I love a cartography right. <laughs> type system, uh, especially back when when maps were were so precious and and hard to to follow. Um, I mean, I guess none of that is survival exactly, but I'm not sure. Did you ever? I mean. <laughs> Have you, have you heard of the game Seven Cities of Gold? Yes, I loved Seven Cities oh, of Gold. Oh, you played it? I okay. did. I thought it might be before your time. No, no. Okay. I, I did play it on DOS some. Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. Um, I mean, that's that's like always my go-to if I think about an exploration game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it had all these these weird little elements of like finding the source of a river. It just felt so satisfying, especially one yeah. that like, was so long. Um, I don't think I ever succeeded. I think I was too young to actually play the game properly, but I was, I found enough to be mystified, (laughs) but Uh, yeah, that kind of thing, like trying to find the source of a river or trying to uncover the, where's the, the buried treasure of the, whatever, um, those kinds of, of tasks would be more interesting as a moon hunters activity, I think. Yeah. And the designer said that the idea for the game came from getting lost. Like, like really? That was, that was uh, yeah, that was her experience. Like, she, like she got lost uh, in the woods one day, like in the Ozarks, and you know, it was just kind of like, what would this experience be like as a game, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, seventy seas of gold, it is very easy to get lost. Oh, you get lost instantly. You know, like you. That's why the rivers are so important. Because <laughs> you're like, okay, now I know I can. If I keep going here, eventually I'll get back to the the water because you know everything flows, you know, flows back to the sea eventually, mm-hmm. right? But if you take the wrong turn and then you lost the river, you're not sure which river it is. You might get back <laughs> to the, the ocean, but you've lost your boat, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, that's 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 a possibility. I also had a strong fondness for um, Ultima Savage Empire or Ultima mm. Ultima Six Savage Empire, something like Ultima. Uh, Was it Worlds of Ultima? Savage Empire. <laughs> <laughs> that the Savage that was like the weird offbeat one. It was like a the dinosaur one, one. The dinosaur yeah. one. Yeah. The then there was the one on the moon or whatever. There, yeah, or I Mars, never played that Mars, one. The Mars one. Martian yeah, Dreams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martian um, Dreams. That's right. Yes. Okay. So what did yes, you like about getting, Savage Empire? So this is, I guess, probably deeply related. Um, it, it, my partner and I both adored this game as like 10-year-olds. And it was just getting lost in the jungle and being completely terrified. In, no idea. Yes, completely <laughs> that's independently. Very, that's very sweet. Right. Um, both, yeah, just being terrified at seeing a, a T Rex suddenly, unexpectedly, and right. and coming across a, a different village than you played last time. Um, yeah. I mean, so games you, back then, you, you know, you didn't save your progress very much. So. <laughs> so you could still have combat in the sense that you were. You could still have danger yes. in the sense that like there are things that could kill you yep. and you probably don't want to fight them yep. and you only fight them if you have to, mm-hmm. as opposed to Moon Hunters now, which is like, you have to, like, that's the... You just fight everything all yeah, the time and just murder the wildlife. Yeah, yeah it's terrible. Real early, <laughs> when I first played Moon Hunters, you know, there was this like narrative stuff and I was like, oh, this is kind of an interesting, quirky little game and like I, you know, there, I forget whether it was, whether it was a... A duck was following me or something and they're like you know it's just like it's like oh, it was a turkey there's well i don't know what yeah yep yeah, turkey follower turkey, turkey mm-hmm. follows follows me and like oh this is good so then i saw these little funny little creatures and you know i'm like oh hello funny little creature ow 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 you know and i'm like somehow the game had the signposted at, at, at this point that like everything that moves is an enemy you know and that's 
you know, that's like 95% of video yep. games, right? So <laughs> it's not like that should be a surprise, but like, but just, you know, somehow it had put me in a mindset where the interactions could be different. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, like, I wonder if there could be a world here where, okay, maybe I'm afraid of creature A, but maybe creature B could kill creature A and I can get around it without having to get involved. And like, I'm, you know, I'm underpowered and I just have to learn to survive in this environment, right? By yeah, hiding I mean, or by, you know, you know, like distracting them somehow and then going somewhere else. I mean, there are possibilities there, right? There are, definitely. I think, uh, yeah, avoiding hazards is, is part of the joy of traversal usually. Um, and and if you could have this, this sort of feeling like you could uh, manage that hazard in a, in a very approachable way with living, breathing creatures, it feels like you have multiple inputs into their, their behaviors. That, that could be satisfying. Yeah. Another thing that sucks about combat is that it's super competitive. Uh, it's a super competitive uh, game mechanic if that you'll be compared to other games on. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Like the the bar. Is so high. For for to be compared with is so high with combat. Yeah. It's like I would never try to make a Twitch based <laughs> combat game because I feel like I'd be like twenty two again trying to like get back in the games industry. Right. I mean. In 2014 to 2015 was when we were making Moon Hunters. It wasn't as crazy high bar as it is now, but mm. it was it was still higher than we, we should have known better <laughs> uh, <laughs> than to fall into the trap of trying to climb that mountain with the resources we had. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's just. I mean, it's, it's weird because that's not a that's not a game play reason not to do something no that's but a production like a, reason for it, sure yeah but. sure but it's also it is a reason to do things which yes. is like it's important to remember to, these these are all important things to think about when you're making games yeah the expectations of the player what you'll be compared to um it now going back to moon hunters it really feels extra janky um <sighs> i just remember doing a lot of kiting <laughs> yes. a lot of kiting <laughs> where i'm like I'm I so feel, sorry. <laughs> I feel like there is zero chance I can beat this creature. I can tell it's like, okay, obviously you tuned it so I don't can't just like kill them all the time, <laughs> which is fine, right? Because otherwise it'd be boring. But somehow I'm a little too underpowered. So the only way to do it is like hit it and run. Then they chase me, hit it and run. So this is the dark side of multiplayer design okay. is that if you have two players, there okay. are usually interesting different ways sure. to deal with that I could uh, see whereas that, being yeah. single player kiting is usually your only option yeah right yeah without like a depending on your character but usually yeah kiting is yeah. the best i mean if, if you know with the production resources you could do like companions right mm. and then like that sure then you probably have a shot because then you could kind of balance it yeah yeah you know uh, appropriately but you know how many people made moon hunters uh Four full-time people. Four yeah. full-time people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a small team. Yep, it um, was. We had yep. some contractors too. But. Right. Okay. Um, so tell me, like, what happened with Moon Hunters? Like, you know, like it. It, it, it taught it, us a lot. I mean, not necessarily like how it performed or something, but like it came out. Like, what did you learn from that process? What did you learn from like the people who played it? What surprised you? Things like that. I learned that Kickstarter was actually, even though it was exhausting and horrible in many ways, it was uh, it was very effective for us as a self-publishing, Steam-oriented indie. Mm -hmm. 
um, as a tool for visibility and moon hunters proved to me that I, I was capable of making a fictional world that people kind of liked, (laughs) um, that I, I did feel like it was more successful at making an interesting world than a lot of other, uh, like similarly scoped indie games at the time. And so I got a lot, I got some confidence there. The, the production on Moon Hunters was actually extremely, um, successful in that other than shipping, just we, we shipped a bit too early. Mm-hmm. We should have waited a few more months and added the the proper um, start menu and yep. things like that before shipping and, and made the network code better before shipping. Um, like there was no crunch. We did it in basically a year and a half. Like it was it was a very well done little project. And when did you do the Kickstarter in the in the process of it? Like towards the beginning. Okay. Um, so you really, you didn't we had nailed down the art style, but we hadn't nailed down the core gameplay. It was a total fakery. Um, we didn't even have a, really a demo prototype other than the, the dungeons of fate, which is basically unrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just cobbled together a video out of, uh, like art test scenes. And that's why it mentions a village, okay. <laughs> which doesn't exist in the game. Yeah. Uh, cause you're supposed to be like coming back to the village and, and that changes over time and things like that. Um, so that was 2016. No, Um, no, it was 2014 because after the incubator, we were starved for money and tried to get money in various different places and Kickstarter was one of them. So it was 2014 and the game came out in 2016. Um, so it was, yeah, basically mid pre-production. Okay. So the Kickstarter was an important, pretty key aspect for keeping guys going. Um, It was partially the money and partially the, uh, attention that, came along with it. Um, yeah. so other people were willing to, to pay attention to us and, and it, uh, as a result of Square Enix Collective and Kickstarter together. Right. Okay. And did the, were you able to maintain a community? Yeah. Uh, so that's the other thing that I learned was that I do enjoy sort of uh, transparent development and involving community in that. And we, also used it as our sort of training wheels project to have um, to try out console ports for the first time. So we had our first employee uh, join towards the end of Moonhunter's development, and his job was to put it on all the consoles because that was his dream was to to make console games. He'd never been allowed to do it before. Um, so we learned a lot on the technical and business side about what it's like to release console games. Right. But as a designer. <laughs> um, I, as a designer, what did I learn from Moon Hunters? That's a good question. As a designer, with Moon Hunters out the door, like we now had two games where I had been more and more interested in procedural generation. Right. And... In the run-up to Moon Hunters launching, I actually, uh, in order to, in, in case it, it underperformed and we sold zero copies, um, I took on a work for hire that was on a very exciting IP for us that had uh, deep systemic procedural elements. Mm-hmm. 
And that was what we did for for a year while the console parts were being worked on. But as right. a designer, that's what I was actually excited about. My heart was in this systemic procedural project that I can't talk about. Okay. <laughs> um, because you, you know, that it interests you in Moon Hunters, and then you were able to explore that more yeah. in this project. Yes. Okay. Um, it was a it was a highly highly systemic but character driven uh, project. Um, where the, the characters would be generated and they would have storylines in theory, but in practice it was much more like little life's lives together. And sadly, uh, for, for various reasons, um, the, the funding, the, the client canceled the project after a year and they can't, they canceled lots of other projects at the time. I don't think it was just our project, but, um, boyfriend dungeon, was supposed to be a short palate cleanser before we went back into, into procedural simulation generation deeply. Okay. We were like, let's just quick make a little hybrid visual novel RPG because what we really want to do is okay. <laughs> this deep, did, complex thing. Right. So what did what did you find exciting so exciting about like the systemic work, the procedural generation, and so on? I find it really interesting to think about what is meaningful in, in different playthroughs? Um, in like the question you asked earlier, it's like, what does it mean for it to be different every time? Right. And so I can't announce what our next project is, but I can say that we're putting more effort than ever really thinking through, okay, if the player regenerates the world, which are the aspects that are meaningfully different and which are the ones that they can, they can recognize from playthrough to playthrough and, and, and again, feel different, feel like they understand these systems and they're exploring them with you, the designer. And I find that really interesting, um, both as a player, but, but also just as a designer, it's so much more fun. It's so much more fun to design these systemic games that... It's so much more fun because... Because... I don't know what's necessarily going to happen right. all the time. Like even the basic generation of like Moon Hunters and Shattered Planet and Boyfriend Engine still helps. Um, but when you can genuinely not be sure what's going to happen when you open that door and what's going to happen when you, when you go check this thing out and well, what does that mean? Does it affect this other thing? Like you're not actually totally confident about what your game is doing when you let it free. I find that very exciting. surprised by your game. I do. I, I think that's one of the most pure pleasures of a, as a designer. Yeah. Well, I've basically only worked on games with random apps and generally procedural generation. I'm not, I'm not sure how I'd be able to play a game enough times if it was completely static. You know? It's so, I, it's so miserable. People who make <laughs> authored, like, completely scripted yep. sequences yeah, I no envy yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i don't i mean like at some point you just be like well this works technically is it fun i have no idea because i'm so i've seen it so many yeah times, i know? mean boyfriend engine the 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 date sequences ended sure. up like that for me where i'd play through them a bunch and then i'd be like i have no idea whether anything's good anymore uh, the production on that game was was troubled enough that I could uh, step away from any given thing for a few months and come back and be fresh eyes then, but still only for another few playthroughs and then it's it's I'm blind again. So yeah, no, yeah, no, just pity for for authored game designers. <laughs> Sorry. 
Um, all right, so you, um, Moon Hunter's finished up. You had this uh, project that got canceled, mm -hmm. unfortunately, mm -hmm. so you need to scramble. Yep, we scrambled, and uh, at least half the team was excited about this uh, joke that I'd been making for years. Okay, what um, was the joke? The joke was that I loved dating in RPGs, but I wanted to date everybody, not just the girls. So why isn't there a boyfriend dungeon? And so when that project got canceled from under were us. There, are, were there no dating sims where you're dating guys? Nope. But, not major ones, at least. Um, okay. Wow. It's funny because I think <laughs> of like boyfriend dungeon being about dating your weapons, right? Like about like mixing the two and genres. And that came later. Not so much about like, oh, you're dating guys, mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean, women kind of like romance novels, I've heard. They do. They do, <laughs> so, I think. It seems like that's an audience. I mean, so there had been dating in RPGs, of course. They're like dating girls, like in uh, Dragon Age, I think. You, right. You'd been able to date women or, or maybe uh, sure. Mass Effect or something like that. Right. But um, as far as more indie side, there was nothing. And as far as uh, more traditional RPGs. Uh, like, I don't know, JRPGs or something like that. Right. Was, yeah. That was my main frustration. <laughs> right. Was that I, I've had many JRPGs I've loved throughout the years. Um, but whenever they have romance, it's it's always very, uh, very male, gazy, hetero. Sure, of course. Yeah. Um, and the, the, whole, the whole kind of genre of dating sim, I don't know much about when that kind of like started. Was that a thing around that time, or? Well, there was um, had a full boyfriend, right? Okay. Which was a, a major uh, not not touch point, but we knew that we would be compared. Um, it was it was already out for some years, and so yeah, that's part of how the the day your weapons thing came about was that we looked at had a full boyfriend and how it was successful, and it it smuggled in this sort of queer interesting uh story into its its visual novel um by playing it as a joke as a, everything's a joke and then right. and it's well written enough that that everybody can enjoy it and and all the reviews sort of point at this uh, at least at that time they were all like haha someone got this for me i'm super straight i promise but it's hilarious blah, blah, blah. right um and so yeah, after so like only weird games that could have it both ways you know yeah like it, it was Clever. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, so we were working on it for about, I don't know, three weeks or something. And I, I realized that there was this problem of the resources we'd need um, to have a, an AI character with you in an action RPG um, in the dungeon would be a huge amount of effort to animate like a companion and, oh. and balance it and, and all this sort of thing. So your original idea was just kind of more straightforward. Yeah. It was just like, like you're an RPG. Let's do a, let's do an RPG. Let's do a, you know, a Bioware RPG or yep. whatever where, I mean, real time, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But like you're dating your companion. You're dating companions in an RPG. That's it. Yeah, it's just, it. A, you can date the boys and right. so yeah, it's yeah. boyfriend engine and there's going to be like Zodiac signs or whatever. Uh, but after a few weeks, so yeah, I was looking at this problem and I was looking at the, the how reviews and I was like, it solves both production and marketing and design Right. <laughs> if you're dating your weapons. Um, and the team all laughed, and then we were like, yep, that's And that's it's, a good, thing. it's a good line. It is. It's a good tagline. <laughs> nothing was lost. Yeah. So, and, and a couple of months later, uh, they announced Dream Daddy. 
and mm, right. uh, it was like kind of a, a shadow we would call it now a shadow drop because they they announced and then released a month later or something right um which was very distressing at first and then very encouraging because yeah. it, it did very well yeah right i would i would think so yeah um or at least i could yeah i could see both sides <laughs> but then we but then we also knew afterwards people say oh you're a knock on to dream daddy which, <laughs> which it wasn't technically but yeah yeah were you i mean you must have been uh, affected by Dream Daddy some, like, after it came oh, out. Oh, definitely. Like, uh, I mean, the two were, were in the same breath from most journalists uh, after we announced, for sure. Right. But, I mean, you played Dream Daddy. Did it change A little bit. your thoughts about anything that you were doing, or...? Mm, not really. Um, the main... It didn't, no, I would not say that playing Dream Daddy changed anything. I was very appreciative of the resources they and they put into their polish, though, that right. to this day, uh, we, we definitely don't match their um, cunning use of, like, interface changes to, like, that's how they do their pacing breaks, is these, these little quirky interaction changes. Um, and... And I think their writing was top-notch as well. Sure. Um, okay. Well, all right. So, you know, you started with a joke about, like, <laughs> you want to be able to date, you know, why can't we date guys? Um, and you knew you were in an RPG mindset. So that was where kind of, like, we did the Diablo-style game. I mean, we already had made two right. RPGs. We just finished an action RPG a year earlier. And I was like, well, we can just throw together an action RPG with a, a bit of a silly visual novel. It won't take very long. Right. Okay. And then, like, five years pass. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Well, let's talk about what... Okay, let's talk about how this all happened then. Um, you know, what was kind of the first stage? Uh, the first stage was defining the character designs and what it meant for the weapons to also be people or not. Um, we very quickly decided they would be people to be relatable, that it would be a modern world uh, to be more relatable, for the romance to feel uh, more like going on a date was at locations that made any sense at all. Because um, right. dating isn't really a thing <laughs> in the types of historical settings I'm interested in. Um, and it, it was, again, sort of a world-first uh, question, and then afterwards, like, okay, so, but what about this combat situation? Like, we're definitely in a dungeon. We have weapons. The filler is combat again. Right. But how are we not going to make it like Moon Hunters? And so I tried to delegate that design, and that backfired. Um, actually, um, in what way? Well, I, I mean, I didn't have any other designers on the team. So even though I had uh, interested, um, hybrid designer programmers, that's not the same thing as somebody who's like, I'm a combat designer and right. I'm willing to spend months of my time agonizing over the best way to, to make a, a combat system. Right. And I think... I'm also not intrinsically interested in it either. So there was this uh, wishful thinking on my part that because a designer programmer said they were interested in doing that, that I could just leave it to them and mentor them if necessary. But so you're um, making a, a you're making a game in a competitive genre where you didn't have uh, like a a specific designer who was passionate about that genre. 
Basically. Yeah. Yeah. The, the action RPG part of it definitely was the least uh, compelling part of the, the product design. <laughs> but it needed to heat, but still we knew that it needed to hit a much higher quality bar than like if it, if it was anywhere near as, uh, you know, the, the, the action combat of Moon Hunters, that would be unacceptable. Um, so we did a lot of iterations, a lot of very expensive iterations, and we eventually figured it out. Uh, we eventually got something that's like possible <laughs> for what the game needed. Well, I'll tell you what, what does work is that um, the, the, the loop itself between the dates and the weapons and upgrading the weapons is very effective, right? Like it sort of solves a problem that some of these, some RPGs have where you get good at a specific weapon and you just keep using that weapon, right? Like, it was a very elegant solution of like, okay, it's a dating game. Well, that means you want to be dating lots of people. That's the whole point. And, you know, the the, the, the weapons max out, so you're going to want to, you know, you, you know, you need to switch weapons. I mean, you don't have to, but, like, it just makes sense you, you switch your weapons, right? Like, I found I found that loop worked, worked really, really well. Thank you. Um... Yeah, we knew we wanted that that pacing feeling of um, I'm using this weapon, the, these couple of weapons in this run, and then I do a date or two, and then I use another couple of weapons, then I go on a date or two. And that was working fairly early on. Um, what we didn't figure out until the very end, almost, was how to cap the love exactly. Because for most of your first playthrough you want it to work just like you talked about, where you want it to max out and then you go do another weapon and then you come back and then you, you come back when that person, you've gone on a date with that weapon and now they're ready to, to love you more or whatever. Um, however, after you've maxed out one weapon, you don't want to do that whole thing again for all the others. There's just so many characters and you're probably around towards the end of the progression by that point because of the way the story works. Right. So we were agonizing over it for the whole production. Um, and what we had for most of it, what the, 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 what most playtesters encountered was a situation where it was technically maxed, but the love that you would have gained with that character in the dungeon wasn't lost. So if you had three, if you, if you needed 200 to max out, it would max and you, you can't, you can't level up with them anymore. But if you gain another hundred for whatever reason, you went on hangouts or you gave them gifts or whatever, that hundred would still be there after you leveled. So you would have a hundred towards the next rank. It would overflow. It would overflow, exactly. But it wouldn't tell you that it was going to overflow? Uh, no, it would tell you how much it was overflowed by. Um, and in fact, in order for that thing to make any sense, it, it basically let you overflow all the way to the next level a lot of the times and it was deeply unsatisfying <laughs> so what ended up happening is that you'd rank up your weapon and then they'd immediately have another rank for you available oh, it was oh just... you're, wait you're saying this is the way it used to work yes oh yes, okay okay yes. I, I was confused i'm like i don't remember this so the reason okay. but the reason why we did it that way was because after your first maxed out weapon we mm -hmm. wanted you to not feel like you had a super grindy thing you could go through as a as an end game player and just gain 
all the levels and, and see the dates and, and move on with your life. You, because you're worried about the, the weapons you encounter later in the game for the first time. Exactly. You're not going to have time to go through all that. You're not going to want to do all the same repetitions. It would be very, very repetitive. Is that what happened in, 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 in reality? Like, was that, was that the, the, what you were afraid of? Is that true? So it would have been true... Okay. Um, I think because, and actually, so this is the real lesson of Moon Hunters that I should have remembered earlier. The main okay. thing I learned from Moon Hunters as a designer was that when you only pay attention to the people who play the game like a normal person, <laughs> um, you miss out on your evangelists because what what we did with Moon Hunters was we designed it in what we thought was the totally normal way um, is that most humans play it for about six hours and they're, they're like, yeah, I finished the game. I unlocked most of the things. That's good. Right. However, if you wanted 100% that game, we made the achievements in such a way that it's, it's tedious and frustrating and it is sort of out of your control. You just have to spend another five hours um, trying to unlock all the things. And that we were like, oh, yeah, and it, it boosts our playtime on Steam. Yay, that's good. <laughs> Except that it means that the people who are the most excited about the game a have a bad experience. That right. they, they 100% it and they're like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you I'm like, I was so in love with this game, and now what? Yeah. Uh, so that was the main takeaway I had, was right. that make sure people leave super happy like don't overstay your welcome don't overstay your welcome right make sure they end satisfied right. you didn't want that to happen with boyfriend dungeon. exactly so okay. I, I and i suspected that boyfriend dungeon might have more super fans uh based sure. on the the kickstarter results it was like okay we're gonna have people that are definitely gonna want 100 percent everything yeah the, the stories especially right? yeah so i was deeply concerned about these people feeling like it was super grindy to max out all the weapons okay so that's why we had this sort of compromise system for the longest time. And then finally, uh, but so the, and the reason why we didn't go with the, the, the hard max was because, well, because of the grindy thing. But we, what am I saying? It's very late. <laughs> Sorry. All right. I've, um, I've lost a little track of how it actually works now. You're telling me there used to be a system where it would overflow. It would overflow. And now my, the way I remember playing is... It, what you know, the, the the meter fills up, and when it's maxed, it's maxed. Am I misunderstanding? So, there, but there's one thing that happens, and okay. so so my fear with that system right. was that it would become very grindy yes, later. Right. And I only realized the answer to all my problems about like three weeks before we shipped um, by asking myself, what would a Nintendo designer do? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and. The answer was uh, having a, a very gamey thing explained diegetically by a character as like a magic object that changes the rules of the game. Okay. So what happens when you max out a character is uh, the first character you max out gives you uh, a whetstone. Okay. And that is a magical item in this world, apparently, mm -hmm. um, that lets your points overflow. <laughs> oh, it switches and, to the... Okay. And it doubles the love you get. Okay. So that let me much more discreetly balance, like, are you in the first playthrough type or are you in the collect-em-all type gameplay? Right. And and so the 
change the mechanics when they should be changed. Yes, exactly. Uh, because there are two very different ways of interacting with the weapons. Um, so like communicating it to the player through a character saying the game is different now and you're great. <laughs> yep. Um, solved all those problems and it made me very happy. Yeah. Okay. No, no, I, I, I get that. It's, it, I mean, I feel some similarities with issues with balancing Civ um, where there is that nice middle part of the game where like everything seems like in in balance in the sense that like you have you have the right amount of attention you don't have too many units and you're making interesting choices but then eventually it, you know just this the stuff that was good earlier is no longer good later right um, and you know that the loop you've outlined yeah you know once once you're once you're through it you know you want to you just want to finish the stories mm -hmm. like you're you know you've, you've got capability of weapons so. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. So I haven't, I'm stuck with a couple weapons on level five and I'm waiting for my dates. They're not showing up. <laughs> I am a little confused. You might have to up. respond to Eric. Uh, there is a, a bug that's very deep in the systems that we couldn't fix where if you've ignored him too much in the middle of a text message, especially, um, the game's progress won't continue. Oh. Well, I've been pretty... I've been ignoring Eric a lot. He rubbed me the wrong way. Oh, uh, very shocking. Um, <laughs> and it, but so again, it's mostly just letting him finish his uh, his text message. If he's in the middle of a text message to you and you ghosted him, uh, that might be a problem. Okay. All right. Well. And he's pretty obnoxious, so people do that a lot. Okay. I mean, I'm past... <laughs> uh, the cousin, if the cousin has anything to say, you should also talk to the cousin. Okay. All right. Um, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Okay, cool. All right. Um, let's see. So let's talk about the characters. Like, how did you how did you design them? Like, what was the experience like writing them? I assume you did a lot of the writing. Yeah, I did all of the the writing. Um, other than the the first uh, like solid drafts of uh, of Dagger and Hammer. Um, and yeah, the character designs went through a bunch of iterations, but it was always with an eye towards having a diversity of weapons. Um, mm -hmm. with presumably very different play styles um, or feels at least um, and then also a diversity of archetypes of, of the types of personalities that you would be dating um, so in retrospect we probably aimed way too far for too much diversity such that we had too many characters <laughs> we didn't actually need what ended up being 10 dateable weapons that's right. absolutely unnecessary but here we are the last couple i was like oh <laughs> oh there's another one okay <laughs> are you serious <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't necessarily expect this um but yeah it, it is it is it is a little odd because i don't know what the right way to do it because you kind of want them all to start somewhat close to each other but that doesn't make sense either so yeah, I mean, I think it's just a Kickstarter problem. It's really, uh, if we had developed it uh, not with a Kickstarter, I think we probably would have stopped at like five characters. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I think so. So you but guys made a promise of 10 characters? We did, and due to being so visibly interested in diversity, cutting any sure. one of those characters right. would have caused yep, some yep, kind of sure. outcry. Because it would have really reduced our the diversity of our cast. Um, so we were pretty committed, and I did like them all. So it was it was a good pain, but it did probably add an extra year. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Your Kickstarter did well, so I guess that's just, eh, that's just what you're... Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, uh, well, so let's talk about Eric some. You mentioned <laughs> he was he was influenced by someone from your past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so was that like? Did you think of of a character like him from the beginning, or how did how did this develop? From the beginning, I knew I, I would have an easier time writing the the plot if there was an antagonist because I knew I'd never written a novel before, which, you know, it's a visual novel, but it's still like a good hundred thousand words or whatever. Um, and so I wanted to make it easier on myself. And I knew from moon hunters as well, that plot is one of the things I struggle with because I'm a tree designer. I I struggle with the forest and having like a, a well-structured, like, okay, there's conflict building here. There's a climax here. Like moon hunters, uh, Uh, even just getting its threadbare plot was a big struggle. So I was like, okay, I know there are stories without antagonists, (laughs) but I'm going to have an antagonist. And then uh, defining how, how villainous would he be was, was a question of product design and, uh, and I guess personal taste. Okay. How did you answer that question? Um, how did I answer that question? I wanted Eric to make you uncomfortable in a in what I felt was a realistic way that I felt myself uncomfortable, um, but not necessarily force uh, an uncomfortable confrontation. So I wanted to signpost a little bit that... the plot is hinging on this, this character that is causing conflict. Um, but the compromise was that I, I, I wasn't comfortable. There was a briefly a scene where Eric actually, uh, breaks into your apartment Mm -hmm. and decorates it, uh, as a, as like a Valentine's day, like tree. Mm -hmm. He like makes it all romantic and like basically is like extra stalkery. Yeah. Um, but there's no coming back from that. Like once you know that this guy can come in your apartment, like the whole game doesn't feel safe. Right. Um, and so that's like just a good example of something that sort of ruins the, the core feeling of the game of it being, um, like the apart, like if, and if we wanted the game to fully change and maybe the, the final act, we could have made like, okay, your apartment's not safe anymore. Now the game's very different and it's, it's a whole different situation. Um, but we weren't willing to do that. We were, we, we wanted to preserve the kind of cozy vibes. It was a pandemic. <laughs> like, right. Let's, let's chill out a little bit. Uh, like some of the team members were like genuinely like were a little bit triggered by like past stalker situations and are like, okay, okay, okay. Let's, let's, let's breathe again. Um, I think just having someone be unpleasant in this utopian, like love paradise is like enough, enough. to make the, the things move forward. Um, and for you to believe that maybe, um, maybe he did make a, a sword monster. Yeah. Right. Well, he like, you know, he creates this problem and then to some extent the problem then takes on a life of its own. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's still a bit of a silly plot. Did it ha- is it really believable? He would kidnap like actual people. I'm not sure, but yeah. Gathering little bits of them. That seems more believable. But, right. <laughs> yeah. But how do you drag them into the dungeon? I don't know, but it's all right. Yeah. So how, how do you want people to feel about Eric? I wanted people to feel complex things about Eric. I wanted them, especially at the end, 
I wanted them to wonder if they, if they forgave him or not. Like is, what does it mean for someone to apologize to you for something that like, you don't know if they're actually going to rehabilitate or not. (laughs) Um, I mean, for me, like I always want to believe the best about everybody. And I want to believe that if this character from my past was confronted with how uncomfortable he made me many times that he would change his behavior and, and, and come to God and, and go see a therapist and whatever. And in reality, maybe he wouldn't, but even if he did, would that matter? Right. And, and that's part of what I was interested in, I guess. Uh, so since I haven't got to the ending, <laughs> do you give the player kind of a choice of how to react to that or a little bit? It's a little bit, but it's, it's, it's not an explicit, like, I think it's okay. I, I, I think I don't forgive you. That kind of thing. It's, it's really like Eric clearly has strong self-loathing as the, as the root cause of his problems and his insecurities are the issue. And so he says like, like, I'm going to go work on that. Um, and it's really just your attitude towards like, like, do you even acknowledge that, that he could maybe get better or not? Um, but the conflict is supposed to be resolved at that point. So I didn't want to make a whole nother like denouement, but <laughs> right. I guess, I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, if you, you know, you say that you say that you want the players to be able to make up their, their own minds about, you know, uh, how they feel about Eric and, you know, um, you could spell that out more explicitly or not. Right. Like those are, those are two very different paths. Um, and I think they're both, they're both valid. Uh, I just didn't, I curious which one you had kind of chosen. I mean, I think you've sensed I, I am a very opaque designer on right. purpose sometimes. Um, because I, I am interested in, in reports when players seem to, to have their own interpretations that, that are constellations they've built based on the, you know, the patterns in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I have somebody on my team who said that, that she had an Eric in her life and, mm-hmm. and she felt it was really cathartic to have him actually apologize and like not require her to, to interact with that. Right. Yeah. It's right. just, a th- she just received the apology and he went away and that was like a, right. a powerful moment for her. Um, sure. cause it's almost like a fantasy, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so that made me feel like it, it achieved the, the, the basic goals. I mean, it could always be better probably, but. Right. No, I, I just wanted to hear what you were thinking because mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is sometimes an apology is now put something on the person who's apologized. Yeah. To, right. Exactly. It's something we don't talk about a lot, but like, that's a, that's a real thing. Um, yeah. And sometimes there's a place for that. And sometimes there isn't. Oh man. I mean, even just needing to, ex- to hear an apology can be too much. Like I had a, I have a friend who just recently informed a, st- a, a stalker type individual from her past that he had been a stalker. Cause he, she was really, she realized he probably had no idea the, the lengths to which he had made her uncomfortable. And so she informed him in a, in like a, an email and he was like, please, can I find you and apologize? Because I had no idea. And I, I'm really glad you said something, blah, 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 blah. And she was like, absolutely not. Don't talk to me. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is... I, that's for you to deal with. I do not involve me in your recovery process. And that's fair, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, I remember when Boyfriend Dungeon came out, there was a lot of online discussion about characters 
and I didn't follow the discussion because I hadn't played the game, <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to, I guess, find out the stuff and I played the game. Was the stuff about Eric? Yes. Okay. Yes. And what was the, what was the discussion? The discussion, the main criticism, uh, which was totally valid, there was one or two good faith people who said, you know, there was a content warning in the beginning that it had themes of stalking. Mm-hmm. I wish it had explicitly said that, that I would be stalked because I, I genuinely felt hurt by that encounter. And if it, the content warning had said something, I just wouldn't, I would have been able to be more ready for that. And we were like, oh, good point. Yeah, we'll change the content warning. Right. Uh, meanwhile, a mm-hmm. bunch of very bad faith uh, people piled those, on and those said, "Those people are great." Yeah, they're great. <laughs> um, who probably never played the game in the yeah. first place. Yep. Um, decided to use that as a reason to just say that he shouldn't have existed. There should be an, a way to opt out of him existing. Um, can you patch him out? Uh, <laughs> and it also, somebody sent a death threat to the voice actor. Oh, jeez. Um, so yeah, not a popular antagonist with some people um but i still think they're the vast minority so do i mean i don't, I don't know how developed the dating sim, sim genre is but do they have antagonists do they have these type of stories or are they just, some do some do okay well, but i think that this is the the age-old thing with designers and how we have to be careful about setting expectations i think because the game opens with a content warning yep and because, and then you're allowed to opt out of the mom texts because those were difficult for some people emotionally. Oh. They, okay. that sort of sets the player expectation of like, well, why can't I opt out of everything uncomfortable? Like you let me know about this and you, you let me opt out of this. Like, why can't I opt out of all of it? Why can't I just have my, my popcorn if that's what I want? Right. Which is from that perspective, totally fair. <laughs> um, but from but when you look at, for example, Persona 5 has mm-hmm. graphic sexual assault and rape and like it's it, it's very dark <laughs> themed dating RPG that had no criticism of its content and no content warnings. Um, it feels very strange uh, right. to have that kind of double standard of it like when a game communicates that it is trying to be diverse and and progressive and whatever then uh it better be perfect (laughs) where i mean why is that is that why you think that happened to your game I do. I mean, again, it's an expectation setting. I think when you, when people looked at Boyfriend Dungeon, they saw something playful and they saw something lighthearted. And and maybe, even though the Kickstarter says, you know, there there's an antagonist and right. things dark things are happening, um, and the bar for the genre, you know, the the level, the types of storytelling can involve very dark themes. Um, you know, they look at the game, they don't expect any anything uncomfortable to happen. I guess ever. Right. Um, which again, I would have very much struggled to write the game without an antagonist, but right. maybe I should have tried harder. I mean, Hard I, to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, these are, these are questions I haven't had to ask myself. I mean, this seems, this seems <laughs> really, this seems really difficult. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't really write narrative, but it feels like there must be some space for an author to, or whatever, to 
write a story in a way that that they want to convey. I I, I don't know. <laughs> but, but like I know I know that there's you know I, I know there are good faith people talking about these things. So I you know, I don't want to I don't want to put that down either. But it just I, I found it very kind of confusing to know like it it felt like yeah you probably were in a lane where for whatever reason you can't necessarily play by the rules that other other uh, writers designers whatever the narrative, you know, narrative narrative folks do and i bet that's tricky yeah to, i mean when you look out. at it under one light it's like okay so if my game has queer friendly themes now i'm not allowed to have antagonists anymore apparently right but when you look at it on the other theme or the other light it's like well Maybe there should be something shadowy in the start menu. Maybe there should be more signs of, of what the tone actually is if it's supposed to be get a little real, a little tiny bit real sometimes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so um, that it doesn't catch people totally off guard as a product. Yeah, I saw there was a talk I saw this GDC on, on dating Sims. And uh, she, it's funny because she talked often about what was on the cover of like, you know, this is not okay. Basically, like these are the things you shouldn't you shouldn't do, or you shouldn't you can't just just do unless you signpost it somewhere. And I thought I just found that really really interesting. That like it's like okay yeah there are there are some very specific. I'll have to look know, that up. That's yeah, like expectations for this genre. And I remember from a different talk where someone was 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 showing. Um, uh, uh, the covers to fantasy, uh, not fantasy, to the romance novels, and like explaining the rules of like when you see a werewolf <laughs> and a Highlander or a pirate or like like they, they're very specific rules of like this and this order with this number of people. It means this specific type of story, and wow. people really know that like oh, okay, two guys with this wolf means this and like whatever. And uh, I was like, okay, like this 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 is like you need to kind of. Like there's a certain bar here if you decide it's just like I'm just gonna jump into the the romance genre like you you probably need to know all this stuff. Um, yeah, yes and no. I I think in some ways Boyfriend Engine was assisted by the fact that it it still remains relatively unique on Steam. Like there are romance novels of all types on there now. Yeah. Um, but not with dungeon crawling right. oh, sure. um, yeah. and not on like with very clear, like American esque uh, themes and setting and whatever. Like there are various reasons why I think at this moment, at least um, it's allowed to be slightly um, blind to, <laughs> to certain conventions that have popped up uh, in the, in the more dedicated genre. Maybe it'd be different if I started working on a on a boyfriend engine too. I don't know. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, what else? Uh, what did what else did you learn? Like going through the whole process with boyfriend engine, things you might might have done differently. Like what did, what did it teach you about yourself as a designer? Things things along like those lines. The main through line that I learned was that. If I'm going to ever make a game about combat again, <laughs> okay, we're gonna have to get a different designer to do it. Right. A designer who loves it, um, because it doesn't make sense for me to be that person. 
with the level of quality that's necessary for combat to be successful, uh, at least in, in all the platforms that currently exist. Um, but I think that it's always been a little tiny bit of a crutch for me anyway, so it's actually healthy for me to think about... Different modes of, of activity. Yeah, different, different inputs that the, the player can have. Um, even if I love the RPG systems of, of progression and customization and storytelling and things like that, um, really questioning why, why is there combat here. Right, yeah. I feel like there's something sort of going on with games right now that there's space is starting to open up for all these different types of subject matters and topics and settings where you, a designer really wants to really should be making a game that they're that's about a mechanic or a topic or a theme that they are crazy passionate about and like know from top to bottom better than anyone. Like I'm thinking of like Josh Sawyer and Pentiment, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like mm -hmm. Where did this like crazy 16th century Bavarian, you know, monk, you know, uh, uh, what's the name for uh, 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 illuminated manuscript yep, game yep, yep. come from? Or Sam Barlow in Immortality, mm -hmm. where he's like insane about like getting the 70s film grain right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, like you know, I think I think we all as designers need to figure out like, okay, you know, to to really come across. Um, to authentically make something that stands out, you can't fake it, I think. Right. Like, you really have to look inside yourself and look at what are you willing to pour literally thousands of hours into crafting perfectly and 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 beautifully. And it, especially because the market's so crowded, I don't think that you can you can get by if, if it isn't completely sincere. Right. Yeah. I mean, all of us have a few things that we... Are passionate about like that and and sometimes we have to do other things for various reasons just because we think we got to make the game work mm. or, or whatever um but yeah i think that's that's kind of our challenge to find a way to to bring across the stuff that we're we're craziest about and how do you make that into a product right because yeah. <laughs> is often the hard part like yeah. i i think even as someone who who is rather passionate about um indie film in some ways like mm -hmm. as an amateur um, I would never have thought to make immortality. <laughs> like, <laughs> even if I had made uh, her story and telling lies, I still am not sure I would make immortality. Um, so it's it's Sam being Sam as well. Right. Yeah. And I can you know of all your games, I feel like I can see that the most in like the the narrative stuff in Moon Hunters, mm -hmm. where it's like okay, I can see there's like you're really trying to do something here that's that's different and. Um, you know, it's unpredictable, yet it's still within this kind of like epic framework that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I hope I hope that you know the work you do is able to like extend that because I found it really interesting. Thank you very much. Yeah, our our next uh, I call it our flagship. Our next big project is extremely big, but um, part of what's fascinating to me about it is is that. Um, so I'm excited to see where it goes. It's going to take some years, but I'm loving it. It's uh, and the thing that I, 
I do have to fake a little bit because I don't know that much, but I'm very excited the more I learn. And we've hired scholars to, to help inform us. Is uh, a, a touch point is Constantinople. Oh, awesome. And yeah, right? Like, <laughs> well, I'm already I, there. That's great. <laughs> like, I know this much about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, but, we could de- you can definitely dive deep on something that you know you think might be interested and yeah. become an expert. Like, that's totally something you can do. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be as much of an expert as Josh Sawyer is on, on, sure. on his topics. Um, but in in the meantime, I can also look at the, the procedural monotheistic beliefs that are influencing how the overlord makes policies on importing certain fruits. And like, like that's deeply interesting to me. Okay. Are you going to have the whole bizarre flip back and forth between iconoclasm and icono, icono, <laughs> Well, where they're all like every hundred years they seem to change the policy and like, you know, like destroy the idols and then bring the idols back. We're going to be not as religiously oppressive as Justinian um, and probably closer to Constantine. So um, definitely monotheist, definitely still some heretical sects and um, offshoots. Hopefully that's somewhat generated. We'll see how that goes. Okay. Um, so but the, also some old gods around. Okay. Um, so this is the interesting religions. time where you got a bunch of, you know, you got the Nestorians and you got the different random little sects where it's, you know, like Christ- esotericists are out there. Like they see the truth in Plato's words and, and okay. that kind of thing. And they're, they're doing their weird societies trying to get at the, the core of the universe. And, and meanwhile, like there are still these people that, that will check out their, their, uh, ancestor cults to this one hero folk hero that saved this one wolf or whatever right yeah okay religion hadn't quite got so organized no i mean there was still the monotheism that was like the official state religion but like everyone else is like allowed to exist right they're just like a lower citizen (laughs) okay yeah all right well that sounds really interesting thank you thank you it's uh I'm I'm deeply interested in it even though we've already been working on it for a couple of years so and I think it's in a good direction. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, well, one thing I like to usually finish with is uh, why why have you dedicated your professional career to making games? I think the honest answer is that I really love seeing players be surprised. Okay. <laughs> um, and and the honest the, so the the pretentious answer, which is act, is also true, is that I I do genuinely cherish when players tell me stories about the game that they played and the experience that they had because it's, it was enabled by me. Um, but it was through this artifact I made and like, like, yes, that happens with books and that happens with movies, but it's, it's much, much more intensive, especially with procedural games that players will just have this experience that, that I didn't craft exactly. I just made possible for them. Um, but I think if it weren't for the joy that I, I really see people have together around the games that I've made, I, I wouldn't be drawn back to it. Um, and I'm a deeply silly person, actually. And I don't think I... And so I use the word joy very deliberately there, that I think I 
will always be drawn back to multiplayer because that's where the the easiest joy fountains kind of happen is when two people are playing in in a way that interacts with each other in a joyful way and they're surprised both by the game and each other and that's just a magical moment like that that i when it happens i i just can't get enough cool um well that's a good answer but (laughs) i think player curiosity is just a a wonderful magical thing and i hope people can always be curious and so i i really really want to make games that that always make people really curious about what could happen next what might happen next and and that 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 joyful surprise moment um it's addictive. Yeah. Um, do you watch players, people playing your games? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because a, a bit of that is like, how do you actually get that feedback directly? I mean, people will tell you like the stuff happened mm. in this game and that's wonderful. Right. And like, um, it's, uh, but yeah, it's important, especially if that's so important to you as a designer to figure out how to actually see that or know that that's happening. Right. I think this is another sign that that more of my designer heart was in Moon Hunters, even though the production was half as long as Boyfriend Dungeon. Is that I? It's not nearly as painful for me to watch to watch people play Moon Hunters, um, Boyfriend Dungeon, because it was a more authored, um, and because it it maybe because it took longer, um, but it's not as surprising. Right. And so even if they're curious, what's going to happen with the character? It's not. The, the scene, same kind yeah. of like I really don't know what could happen next feeling. Right. And the scene's gonna happen and maybe you're happy with how it is or you're not, but it's <laughs> but the plot will continue the and I'm they're gonna like me more probably. Um it's ultimately rather predictable. And that's fine. That's the kind of game it is. Um but with Moon Hunters, I genuinely do see people get delighted. Like they do uh, think, oh, it's that. Like I didn't think that would happen. And and that's the kind of moment that I, I want to keep making. All right. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank and, you, sir. Uh, I'm, uh, thanks for taking the time. And this was fun. <laughs> thanks. Cool.